0: Welcome to The Basin Conspiracy. I'm Inyash Brodsky. I'm Steven Zuber. And today we have a guest, Reese Lenmark. Thanks oh. for being here. <laughs> Thank you for coming over. And we are here to talk about cryptocurrencies. Uh, you, we have you on because you know some things about cryptocurrencies, whereas we don't really all mm. that much. Mm. Uh, the, I, I mean, I guess I know a little bit now, but not a ton, ton. Uh, can you tell us, first of all, what a cryptocurrency is? Is this like E-dollars?
1: Yeah, so the initial version of it was thought of as like an e-gold, but now it's kind of expanded into various other things. And so a cryptocurrency, the way that I like to imagine it, is it is it represents some kind of value within kind of a network or a protocol that can be used to kind of spend on some other uh, on something within that network. So, for example, um, there's this thing called the Basic Attention Token, and you can imagine it as kind of a new version of Facebook. Where right now with Facebook, Facebook pays. Um, if, if you're scrolling in your feed and you're scrolling, you're scrolling, you see some ads, the advertisers pay Facebook essentially to get your attention. You can With basic attention token, instead, they essentially define these like APIs and this protocol and say, okay, now as you're scrolling through your feed, if someone wants your attention, they will pay you not Facebook in not dollars, but instead in basic attention tokens. And then you get those basic attention tokens and then you can either spend those to get other people's attention or you can sell them for US dollars or fiat or what have you.
0: So uh, this is a question that I get a lot from, uh, well, that I have gotten a lot from my roommate and from other people who are new to the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, why would anyone exchange anything for a Bitcoin yeah. or a basic attention token? Like what what is it good for?
2: Wait, quick Uh, pre-question are basic attention tokens a thing that are actually happening yes Uh, because I just was mentioning before we started recording that I haven't been on Facebook in a long time oh I
1: haven't seen it on Facebook I thought re- Oh, sorry, sorry, no, no. So this is basic attention tokens are happening. They're happening through this thing called the Brave Browser, which is started by the person who is a co-founder of um, Firefox and made JavaScript, invented JavaScript. He's making this Brave that son Browser, of a bitch. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. <laughs> um, and so he's making this browser, and within that browser, you can pay with uh, basic attention tokens. It's currently in beta right now. Okay, and I'm assuming
2: you can st- like kickstart your amount of basic attention tokens with real money, right?
1: Um, so you can, you can buy basic attention tokens on any exchange. Is that kind of what you're talking yeah. about?
2: <laughs> yep. So, but then you can earn them by watching ads. People exactly, want you to watch Exactly. It. Exactly. But so for, for some people, they can just like, Oh, I want 8 million of these to start with. And then I'll, I'll get my
1: stuff rolling rather than have to watch ads themselves. Exactly. Exactly. They okay, can, cool. Thanks for clarifying. Yeah. yeah. Um, so why would anybody want to buy a bitcoin Mm -hmm. so there's a couple key underlying things here the first is that there's this bitcoins are part of this new concept of digital scarcity which is something that didn't really exist before the internet is kind of defined by being able to take any object duplicate it infinite times send it around the world wherever you want all for zero cost which is cool um, but there's no scarcity there and that's how you see the issues with pirating and, and spotify and all those things like that so with something like bitcoin because it's a Essentially, digital scarcity um, that is controlled not by any single party, um, not by like a given corporation, but by that it's controlled like by these miners or what have you um, through math. Um, so, it, it's the Bitcoin has digital scarcity. And the reason why you would get into Bitcoin, there are kind of two reasons. I like to think of it as A, the pure kind of scarce value or memetic value or collectible value of the currency. So what this means is a good example. This is Dogecoin, which is this stupid little or also fun little coin um, that it just it was based off of this Doge meme and um, there aren't that, it doesn't actually do anything, right? But because it's a digitally scarce good um, and because there's demand for it, that means that it'll have a price and a value. Um, and so it has a hundred million dollar market cap. And it's kind of essentially representative of the network value underneath. It's representative of the Reddit community and all these things. And they kind of used it to kind of, and they've sold um, Dogecoin to bring the Jamaican bobsled team to the Olympics and they've done like some cool things with it. Um, so that's kind of one side of things for why you would buy, bitcoin or any of these other things it's just so like, a pure collectible value
0: yeah as a collectible or as fundraising
1: yeah collectible or fundraising you can well, and i'm talking about why you would buy into one okay. um so you could say hey ooh, i want this dogecoin because i love the doge meme um and there aren't that many dogecoins and so this person's gonna sell me one sweet i'll pay five bucks for it or whatever um so what stops there from being more dogecoins so the The amount of tokens is defined um, by the protocol. So, for example, with Bitcoin, um, there are only ever going to be 21 million Bitcoins ever. Um, And that's why the current price of Bitcoin is, you know, 4,000 whatever dollars. If there were going to be 1 trillion Bitcoins, then all the Bitcoins today would be worth a lot, a lot less. Um, so it's essentially coded into the system is how many, how scarce the item will be.
0: I, I know about how the blockchain works, but I think a lot of people might not. Yeah. Why can't you just say, I have more Bitcoin and like duplicate a Bitcoin on your
1: computer? Yeah. Um, so this is... So we're kind of covering, starting to cover like the four main sides, or I don't need to go into that, but there, there's, the blockchain is another key underlying part of the system. So you can imagine the blockchain as um, kind of this uh, distributed ledger where, you know, if Anyosh sends me um, one Bitcoin, says from Ineosh to Reese, and then I send one to Steven from Reese to Steven. And you can imagine all those are transactions on a ledger. They all... Um, all those transactions get put into a block, and then those chain of blocks is the blockchain. I like and to imagine it so, as like a toilet yeah, paper roll. So yeah. every
0: single Bitcoin that's ever been created, there is a record of when it was created and every single hand it's passed through. Exactly. It's yep. like a real a physical coin. Whoever holds onto it is the guy who's holding it. And there's no way to trace where it came from, aside mm-hmm. from, I guess you probably know it was minted in the mint.
2: Well, isn't there... Uh like one transaction between say, you know, Inosh gives you a Bitcoin and then before you give it to me, you put it in this jar with a thousand other Bitcoins and I, you put one in there and I take one out mm-hmm. and then there's no way to know that I got it from you, right? So that's how you would anonymize the transfer.
1: Totally, the and that. that is, um, so this anonymous, th- so, so a couple things. So first, it doesn't say Reese or Steven or any the blockchain. It's, it has your, your public key um, with this like RSA cryptography thing. And then the, um, the other side of that is, like you said, you can, there are certain currencies like Monero and Zcash, which are built for more like, more intense anonymous transactions. And they use that system that you just talked about, Steven, where you put all of them together and then you kind of redistribute them. You don't know from whom it came in to where it went um, i thought you could do it with bitcoin i'm not an expert but I, I was under the impression that
2: people who used bitcoins to buy i was going to just say illegal things but that's way too dark for the, the kind of things you can buy with bitcoin uh who buy drugs online with yep. them mm-hmm. they
1: use some sort of anonymizing server or they very well like that. might do that it's not built into the protocol okay, gotcha. there are others where that system is built into the protocol right on so the point with the bitcoin is that
0: every single Bitcoin is tracked. So if someone claims to have another Bitcoin, you can go back and check the public ledger and say, this Bitcoin has appeared out of nowhere. It is not a legit Bitcoin.
1: Yeah, So is that and correct? exactly. And so you can, if you try to say, hey, Reese gave me a thousand Bitcoin, um, that's not, you essentially need my private key in order to sign the transaction in order to say that that happened. Um, and you don't have my private key, so it's impossible to make the claim that Reese gave me
0: a bunch of Bitcoin. So there's um, an unbreakable chain tracking the life of every Bitcoin, which is how we can actually make them scarce
1: yeah exactly okay. Yep, yeah. and and that's why and, and it exists in kind of in this in-between zone not in a data silo at like google or facebook or a bank or whatever but exists on the blockchain visible for anybody to see
0: now on the blockchain when you say that there's no one central server anywhere that has all this information right where
1: is the information stored it's duplicated across all of the network um so my computer for example has um another uh, another blockchain on it um called ethereum and i have the f- I'm, I'm running a full node for ethereum so that means i have the full list of transactions um over time and it's however many gigabytes um and it exists on my computer and also exists on twenty five thousand other computers around the world um and so, so yeah it's not just one place so yeah. people who are into the the scene and want to be a part of it somehow put the, a program on their computer and then that keeps the entire record on their computer Pretty much. And you don't have to ha- be running a full node. And there's mm-hmm. like not that much of a reason to. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of ways, more consumer friendly ways to kind of access the blockchain without needing to have a full history of it. Um, but uh, yeah, you can if you want to run the full node. And if you want to, you can take your computer and turn it into a miner as well. And to start to try to solve these mathematical proofs in order or mathematical hard problems to get Bitcoin or Ethereum or what have you as well. So what's the block part of blockchain? So the block is just the transaction. So it's just like, it's the list of those transactions. So it's transaction, 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 a bunch of those together, get put into one block, and then the chain of those blocks is the blockchain. And for every block, essentially, that goes, that gets added to the chain, there's a reward given to the miner that solved the cryptographic problem to kind of um, check the the safety of that
0: So let's unpack, unpack that briefly. Mm-hmm. Um, from what I heard, if I want to send you a Bitcoin, mm-hmm. uh, we go ahead, we make that request, we exchange our keys and then someone has to run a bunch of calculations on it
1: to what verify that we wanted to make the transaction. Yeah, so this, and and I don't have perfect knowledge about this, but essentially the way that I understand it is that transaction from Ineosh to Reese, um, we essentially submit that transaction to the the network. And then the network says, ooh, I'm going to put this transaction onto the next block. And then a bunch of those together go onto that block. And then when they, they essentially take the list, and this is where I'm not exactly sure, but what they do is they essentially take the kind of, A bunch of those transactions as inputs, um, and then do this like uh, essentially what I understand is like a reverse RSA solve, which means that they're essentially solving a hard problem, and that hard problem is um, it's kind of a two uh, only a one-way problem. So what I mean by that is. If you take two big prime, or if you take one big number and you're trying to determine what two primes multiplied together to equal that big number, that's hard to find out. Um, you can't just say like, "Oh, this like you know really long digit number, it's definitely these two primes." That's hard. Um, and so, unless which, you have a time turner, yeah, exactly. <laughs> <Sorry>. <laughs> which we might. Um, and so, but so it's a hard problem to solve. So it takes a lot of just like brute force in order to solve it. But once you solve it the rest of the network can easily check and go, oh, definitely, you got that. Um, and so they use that with these um, things called nonces, which are like leading zeros. And so there's there's kind of some deeper, more cryptographic mathematical things that I personally don't totally understand. But the key is that it is a one-way solvable problem, hard to solve, easy to check, essentially.
0: Okay, so once someone has run through this, this uh, process of finding the number that mm-hmm. matches, uh, they submit that to the network. It is verified, and then that goes officially onto the end of the chain yep. as the new state of the network. Yep, exactly. Okay, and that how
1: how much effort does it take to find one of those? lots. So um, for a given day, so so the amount of electrical power that's used to, um, you essentially can imagine bitcoins as like a representation of electricity. Mm-hmm. So you essentially go to a place, whether it's in China or America, and you're like, oh, great hydroelectric power here. We're going to take this um, electricity that's really cheap, essentially build a, a farm there, of Bitcoin farmers, turn that electricity into bitcoins. And the amount of electricity that is spent is equal to the country of Denmark right now, I believe. Wow. Um, and so this is, this, this is called, a con- what we're talking about right now is called proof of work where people are proving that they've spent their computer time working on this problem and people are sad about how much electricity is being used. So there are different versions of consensus algorithms that people are excited to use in the future that will use elect- less electricity. These things are like proof of stake or delegated proof of stake and things like that that are going to be less electricity heavy.
0: I, I know that I've tried to buy things with Bitcoin before where it took like more than an hour for the transaction mm, to yep. go through. Because I guess there was just so much traffic and each transaction took an amount of time slash electricity to solve that there just wasn't enough to clear them quickly. Yep, exactly. Which is a pain. <laughs> uh,
2: any any questions so far? Um no, I'm kind of just, you know, okay. following. I I'm not sure if this is the point to segue into this, but I just sold my Bitcoin last or what, ooh, Sunday? Ooh. So I I bought what, point either oh four or oh oh four bitcoins. I had bought like a hundred bucks worth. Mm-hmm. And I bought it, I don't know, in mid-June when it was climbing, and then it climbed for like another two hours, then tr- plummeted for <laughs> three months. And I finally sold it. I bought about 100 bucks, and then I sold it for 181 mm-hmm. in what, four months turnaround? Okay, yep. So I was feeling pretty yeah. good about that. That is a um, huge rate of return. I'll say. Yeah. But, I mean, I sold Bitcoin. That's like a sin, right? But, <laughs> yes, thinking, exactly. One of these hold, but I'm but... thinking like, how long is it going to stay above four grand? Could be forever. Could be that other things will take off. I still have my Ethereum and Litecoin. Cool. Yeah. So my, my friend keeps asking me, why do people give money for Bitcoin? Oh, like, wait, I, really quick question. Yeah. Was I stupid in selling? I should have waited until <sighs> after this conversation to sell.
1: It depends. So, so if I it goes would, up, I'm going to blame you. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So first everybody who's in this space, is pretty hilarious. Everybody says, who's in the Bitco- who's in the Bitcoin blockchain space says, hey, I have some advice here, but remember, this is not financial advice. Mm-hmm. So I, I, do, I actually should say that. Um, <laughs> I think that you can essentially, it's a kind of a bimodal distribution for what this could look like going forward. Bitcoin could either be, the biggest thing that's ever happened and and be worth, you know, millions of like each single Bitcoin, there's only 21 million of them ever. And if it's the main store of value in the world going forward is the main way to do remittances across, you know, countries or what have you. And it's going to be really expensive, you know, as more and more people get into it. Um, and so, you sold it for four thousand. If it's worth a million in ten years, you're going to be a little bit sad. Um, so that's I'm, one version of reality. The I other version. Remember when of reality, Bitcoin hit eighty dollars, and I was
0: like, "There's no way it's worth eighty dollars," and it crashed down to forty, and I was like, "I told ha-ha, you." Ha-ha, and, yeah. yeah, and then I waited then to buy until are. it was like three and a half thousand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and and there is a version of it where it equals zero, though. Whether Mm -hmm. it's if, you know, there's Bitcoin and Bitcoin Cash, and it may be this third kind of Bitcoin, and if there are better ways to do remittances, or if a store of value just becomes one of the ones that has more utility, like Ethereum or what have you, then maybe your Bitcoin goes to zero, and you wish you would have, and you kept it up until 20,000, and then you wish you would have sold it, but then it went to zero. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think I don't blame you, but I think um, the one way that I do think about it is. The, the tokens that you hold kind of make you pay attention to that space. Um, and so if you are not that interested in the Bitcoin space, then I feel like not holding makes sense. Uh, and if you're more interested in Ethereum or Litecoin, I feel like it makes sense to hold those. I'm more interested in the ones that Coinbase, the super user friendly, easy app that lets me buy these things. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So,
2: I mean, I'm not wedded to any of these current these cryptocurrencies. It's more just like, well, they were all easy. Yep. And I was like, oh, I'm I've made almost, you know, I, at one point it was over 200 bucks in what I had in my Bitcoin wallet, and so that went down a little bit, then went back up. And I'm like, all right, well, it's on its way back up. I'm gonna go ahead and just cash out now. Yep. Yep. But yeah, you're right. It could turn into you know a big thing down the road. I'm I'm kind of. Interested as to what other sorts of things it
0: might be used for. And maybe we should get into that later. Uh, you know what? I'm going to shelve that until later. Yeah. Okay. For, for why I'm holding on to my Bitcoin. <laughs> <laughs> like it's it might not just be money. But the thing my friend keeps bringing up is like, I don't understand why I'm giving money for this. That there's a bunch of people f- going through hard math equations on their computer. Why am I giving them money? And ultimately what it was is a guy or a group of guys who said... Hey, we're gonna just make this ledger on the internet. Here's our coin. Give us money for it. Like, why am I giving the money for this? What is just basically a ledger? What what this makes
1: no sense to is, me. Is your question why do the miners get? the like bitcoin as to, i think his to ultimate question, question
0: is like what is what is the value here the the he's like what stops me from just going out and making a coin of my
1: own and saying hey come give me money for my coin yeah so so the value comes from the the pure scarcity of it the other part of it is the utility value um so that but there's means, no real scarcity if anyone can make their own coin version totally so that's why so that gets into the third point around stories that people tell and like there's this big bitcoin and, it, and it's just like the same stories that we've told around various kinds of currency in the past, whether it was shells or gold or fiat currency or what have you, um, is, hey, this thing has value because there are enough people that believe it has value. Um, That is... So that is something to expect going forward, especially for something like Bitcoin. That um, so, so so certain things do have this utility value where you can spend the currency itself. So for example, with Ethereum, you can spend the currency itself to run these like smart contracts to essentially run computation on this world computer. Let's get to
0: that in a few minutes. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, okay. we won't get to
1: that. Um, okay. the, or like basic attention token is similar, where you can spend it for utility value. But um, the if, if you if just deny the utility value, then you can imagine this system as one that allows people to start creating their own currencies. Yeah. So whether it's Bitcoin or like I kind of have my own Reese coin through this like Patreon site. Um, and because of kind of the early adopter incentive structure, where if you get in at the beginning of one of these, um, then that's better. So people As a result of that, people kind of expect there to be um, many different kinds of these things going forward. It's like, hey, I didn't get early enough into Bitcoin. Let's me and a bunch of other people create Bitcoin, too. Um, We'll all get in at the beginning. Mm -hmm. And then the people who are in later have to pay more. And we got in at the beginning. So that's sweet. Um, I think that is
0: his main objection. Like I I point out that Bitcoin is just like any other fiat currency, like the actual Dollar is not worth shit in in terms of the materials. Like, what are you gonna do with a little slip of paper? But it's it's you know that with that dollar you can exchange it for one dollars worth of goods or services. And so I tell them, you know, a bitcoin is the same way. You know that if you paid fifty dollars for a bitcoin, you can get about fifty dollars back by giving it to someone else in yeah. change for money or exchange for you know drugs or whatever it is that you want to buy with it yep. so you know it's 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 a store of value more or less and and his point is like you said that i i don't it seems like a Ponzi scheme that you get in early, Definitely. the price gets
1: pumped way up yep. and then what's to stop everyone from just cashing out and abandoning it? Totally. And I think we'll see some of those things happening and that's already happening within the space in various other ways. And for Bitcoin now, it does have these, we're used to like in Western countries or in America, we have a stable government with a stable US dollar. But like Venezuela buys it, it has a lot of Bitcoin, you know, because they that's a stable form of currency for them. And is in fact a currency that goes up um, or for people who are like doing remittances um, where you're going, you know, from Nepal, like lots of their GDP comes from people in Nepal going to work in the oil fields in the Middle East and then sending that money back to Nepal. And right now you go up from Saudi Arabia up to the Saudi Arabian bank across the Nepali bank down back into rupees into Nepal. And that is um, it requires, you know, 10 days and a lot of transaction fees. And if you can do that with Bitcoin instead, then people are excited by that um, and will actually use it for that. Pure kind of cross-functional or cross-global utility value as well.
0: Neat. I've heard one of the the main advantages that people that people like about the Bitcoin is that it does remove um, the major institutions, the banks and the governments from the the chain.
1: Yep, that's what people are excited about. It
0: yeah. also kind of makes it worrisome because I the big Bitcoin crash that happened a few weeks ago happened after China announced that basically Bitcoin is not going to be
1: legal in mm-hmm. China. Mm-hmm. What Ye- what is all that about? That is a so China. So this is going to be, this is part of a macro trend that's happening within blockchain and bitcoin which is things that have been existing centralized Power structures of trust, whether those are banks or governments, um, are kind of being dissolved into the network um, through things like Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Um, And that is going to be sad for the current people in power, whether that's banks or um, with Jamie Dimon saying, hey, Bitcoin is a scam. Um, So, whether it's banks or governments like China. So, that is definitely going to happen. Um, For the Chinese one specifically, I don't know that much about it, but I do know that um, they are planning on reopening um, both Bitcoin. And the ability to do these token sales and ICOs. But China, more than other places, has kind of a uh, top-down kind of government-controlled system. Um, and so they were one of the more aggressive ones and kind of uh, being more regulatory around it. While things like America are in between and things like Singapore or Switzerland are kind of more free market um, and are places where these things live.
0: So China is basically saying that any legitimate business that tries to accept Bitcoin is going to get shut down by them. Yeah, like that, if you try to pay for your groceries with with Bitcoin and the grocery store accepts, then some government regulator is going to come in there and find them or jail them or something.
1: Yeah, and I don't know. So so and we'll, it'll be fascinating to see what China does with Bitcoin going forward because the strategy that they used with. The, essentially the internet and social media companies, which was keep them out from China with censorship-focused um, strategies and say, you can't be in here, Google, you can't be in here, Facebook. They just um, banned WeChat, actually. Or not WeChat, but uh, WhatsApp. Um, and by banning them, that allowed for the Chinese-specific ones, whether that's uh, WeChat or um, Taobao or uh, Baidu, which are all Chinese versions of the big um, media companies and the big internet companies, those ones that allow them in, to flourish in China. And so we'll see what China does with something like Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies because they'll want to probably employ a similar strategy, but it may not work because collaboration is so incentivized and because you can't, it's difficult to stop things like Bitcoin or what have you. So I don't know exactly what's going to happen going forward. It's definitely. In uncertain territory now, I've heard of people selling their mining equipment and stuff, Um, and then we'll see what it looks like in a week and in a month. But I would definitely expect China to come out, and they've said that they plan on coming out with new regulations around um, Bitcoin and other crypto.
0: Can we get a quick uh, um, uh, explanation for people who don't know what mining
1: equipment is? Because that sounds, on the surface, a ridiculous thing to say about a <laughs> totally, digital totally, currency. Totally. Um, and and mining equipment, it should really be called like um, transaction workers or something like that. Computer transaction uh, you know, workers or verifiers, hardware. validators. Yeah, so it's just a bunch of hardware, uh, kind of like I talked about earlier, where you have uh, in places where electricity is really cheap, you build a bunch of um, computers, computers there essentially and have those computers you kind of give them gpus really advanced like asic gpus um and then you tell them hey solve these hard problems that we talked about earlier and get some bitcoin and then you just have these big uh, mining operations where they're quote unquote, mining the bitcoin and what mining means is just solving the hard cryptographic problems um, and getting bitcoin in return
0: so in the real world, I have a problem with Bitcoin in the same way that I have a problem when I try to spend gold or silver, as the libertarians wish I would, mm. in that no one accepts my slips of gold, nor do they accept my Bitcoin in, yes. in the real world. what is when
1: is this ever going to change? The hope is that it will change. So some of these um, B2C... So, so at a high level we expect there to be uh, Bitcoin the early adopters for Bitcoin were people who wanted to run away from censorship and who want in both from a like bad nation state perspective but also from like a drugs or a legal perspective or what have you um, and then so those were those early adopters the early adopters for a lot of these other new technologies are like developers developers that want to build on open source platforms and stuff so that's where we're seeing all the early adopter stuff happening now but there are some consumer facing applications happening um, we expect Those those are things like Toshi, which is made by Coinbase, or Status. um, But those kind of consumer-facing applications are not are, are just at the very beginning, and most people who use them won't even be aware that blockchain is underlying them. Um, and then we'll see what it also it looks like for people to, um, f- for the ability to buy, like in real life goods and services with Bitcoin. It definitely is not a thing often, right. um, but there are some places that do it. Yeah. That
0: is a that is thing that kind of worries me because, It seems the vast majority of Bitcoin is used for illegal things. And I have no problem with that when it comes to drugs because I think drugs should be legal. So I'm like, yeah, go Bitcoin. But then it also seems to be mainly used for paying ransoms when people are kidnapped and really bad things like that. And I totally understand why if all the governments look at Bitcoin and say, this is a currency that enables kidnapping and human trafficking and other bad things
1: and it doesn't do anything else, we should ban it. That's kind of a problem. Totally, totally. Yeah, and I don't know what percentage of bitcoin traffic these days so i first what percentage of bitcoin is actually being used from a transaction perspective and what percentage of it is actually being is just being exchanged by speculators i don't know that number the other number that i don't know is what percentage of bitcoin usage is um for kind of these illegal uh activities and what percentage of it is actually for just like remittances across borders or whatever i don't know um i think Yeah, I don't, and I don't know what the long-term situation will be with uh, this kind of, and and people, people in the space will say things like, hey, you can't track cash, you know, which we talked Mm -hmm. about earlier, which is true, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, it's, but it's different because cash is more physical, and this is digital, so this is kind of like digital, untrackable cash, um, and that does have some clearly negative actors will come and have negative ramifications, I don't know what that looks like. <laughs> um. I heard with um, things like spending habits
0: and massive data mining, it's not terribly difficult to tie uh, a public key to a physical person anymore.
1: Yeah, I, I've heard things of that variety as well. That you can look at the data and say, "Oh, this was Reese. <laughs> he <laughs> right, purchased so. those, that LSD." Yeah,
0: not not necessarily as anonymous as people yeah. like to think.
2: Yeah. Yeah. But you could use Bitcoin to buy a more anonymous. Currency and then use that to buy yep. whatever nefarious thing you're looking to purchase, right? Yep. Yep. I mean, so like, cash also, isn't trackable except it more or less lives in your bank, which has your name on it, and then you go in and be like, "Can I have eighty thousand dollars, please?" Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure. How come? <laughs> and it, if you withdraw more than ten grand, they want it, they have to they, the the teller fills out a piece, piece of documentation saying this is why you're taking that out. Interesting. Yeah. Um, so you know, you could get around that by keeping it all in your house all the time, but. That almost seems shadier than saying I have 11 bitcoins. Like if you have like, you know, a, a safe in your closet with with stacks of cash, cash. Like that's one of those people looks more like a criminal than the other one, right? <laughs> yeah, of course. That's just that's just speculation, uh-huh. but I don't know. I feel I guess I'm not sure how easy it is to track track your uh, public keys and stuff, but I guess that was just my thought on the the cash versus bitcoin uh, attaching to a person yeah, well, might have thought, and,
1: and I think that what you're one of the, one of the things that I'm thinking about here is this idea of self sovereignty is a big thing in the space where you say, hey, um, like I have ownership over my own money it's Mm. mine it's not owned by the bank it is my private keys that own this i have a written sheet of paper that gets them and i can get my bitcoin whatever there's also like self-sovereign identity where you have your identity on the blockchain it's not owned by it's not a social security number it's not owned by a facebook id or whatever it's your thing that just exists on the blockchain only you can access it that this idea of self-sovereignty and kind of like like libertarianism is is huge within the space, and what we're seeing from people, and what I'd hope to see more and more, is people themselves it becoming the status quo for individuals to kind of sh- like showcase and signal that they are being good actors within the space. Um, so for example, there are these 16 projects just recently got together under no regulation or anything, but said, hey, we're creating this transparency project within the Ethereum ecosystem to sh- to, to signal that we're being transparent. You can see our salaries. You can see our um, where all the money goes. You can see all this stuff. And they're kind of signaling that as a way to kind of be like we're good actors here um so maybe we'll see that happen more in the spaces it's possible to do bad but people will signal that they're doing good by with transparency
0: so you mentioned ethereum which uh i want to pivot to ethereum now because i am pretty darn excited about ethereum can you tell us why ethereum is so cool and so many people are excited
1: about it right now yeah um so ethereum is cool um (laughs) And uh, Ethereum, the way I like to imagine Ethereum is you had Bitcoin at the beginning and people were trying to do other things with it. They were like, oh man, let's make this Dogecoin. And when they made the Dogecoin, it was like a little bit too hard to like fork the Bitcoin code and make the Dogecoin thing. People were also trying to like build on top of Bitcoin, but like you have to code in this really bad language to do it. And like, it wasn't working that well. So this guy Vitalik Buterin was like, or guy slash (laughs) kid, he's like 22 now or something. He was like, hey, let's just essentially make it so that we have an abstracted kind of turing complete computer on the blockchain that can uh make that so you can decode any kind of arbitrary transaction so the way to think about that is through ethereum works through this um key underlying primitive called a smart contract and a smart contract is just something it's essentially a peer-to-peer agreement that allows you to transfer value so for example with that basic attention token um example we gave before that is just a smart contract that lives on the ethereum blockchain and says if it's just an if-then statement. So it says, if you put your, you scroll across this ad, then pay Reese one basic attention token. Um, and so all these smart contracts, they are ways to essentially um, give an exchange value in this peer-to-peer way um, on the Ethereum
0: blockchain. Can you, so how does that happen? Because you said there's a Turing-Complete computer as part of the public ledger. Mm-hmm. What, what, how does that work? I thought the public ledger was like a static thing.
1: Yeah, so these smart contracts um, so on the Bitcoin so so on the Ethereum on the Bitcoin blockchain you can imagine it as just the like list of transactions going mm-hmm. back and forth on the Ethereum blockchain you can imagine it as a you can when you actually code a smart contract you put that smart contract onto the blockchain, it has like an address. So that says, okay, there's this smart contract at this address, Um, just like I have my own address where you can send me ether or whatever. Um, The smart contract is just like that, but instead of sending me ether, you can send the smart contract ether. Um, And the smart contract is essentially like, you know, it's just, it's, so it's on the blockchain, you can see the code, essentially, in this Ethereum um, code, and then you can run it in this kind of Ethereum virtual machine. Um, so it's a way to essentially, you have, in addition to sending and receiving, in addition to the blockchain having um, transaction notes, ris to x ris to y it also has... There's a smart contract at this address, and if you want to run the smart contract, you can look at the rules of that smart contract and interact with it in various ways. Send it some basic attention token and get some people's attention, or um, there are these things called distributed autonomous organizations or DAOs, where it's essentially a smart contract that you essentially can vote with like some tokens and say, hey, we want to vote on where to put this. There's some money on this smart contract. Let's allocate that money to a good thing. Where should we do it? And we all vote essentially. And that smart contract takes those votes as input and then as output sends that money somewhere. So that's what a smart contract is. You know? So is each, I, I'm
0: trying to figure out exactly how this uh, Turing machine works. So I I assuming that the code is not run on individual people's computers. Is it that each transaction hash is
1: another clock tick on the computer or what what's happening the way so i don't know the full deep level the way that i understand it is there is um that in order to you essentially it's so you have your code um and that code is you know the if statements or what have you and you can essentially say um so so what you need to do is you say hey i want to do this thing i want to add this to the list of Running this smart contract, or the way it's, or I would say it says, is running this smart contract should be added to the next block, I believe. And so you say, okay, not only did Rhi send money to X and Rhi send money to Y, but he also ran this smart contract. That's what he's claiming. Okay. And then when that happens, running that smart contract, um, you essentially you need to um, do the computations within that and you essentially need to pay a little bit of ether um, in what's called gas, which is like small little bits of ether to run that code. Um, and so, yeah, I believe that that's how it's run Is saying, hey, this smart contract was run and then the, the, the computer's mm-hmm. and network run it, spending some gas to do so. Okay, um, and then yeah. the output is put into the next block. Yeah,
0: exactly. Yeah. Neat. Okay. and And what... So basically, all that computing power that was being used just for hashes is now also being used uh, to run small Arbitrary, little programs as yeah, well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um, what What is so great about that?
1: It's great because it is a. Um, like, why the term smart contract? Yeah. So you, I, it is okay to imagine as a smart as a, an actual contract. It's okay to imagine as like an agreement between people. Um, And it's nice because you can start to define for any kind of peer-to-peer agreement. Um, You can say, hey, let's create... A new version of this peer-to-peer agreement, we can code it up very quickly, like basic attention token or whatever. We can create this new system essentially, um, and with that new system, it can be run very easily in this kind of trustless way. The smart contracts exist, and and people can run uh, can start to run things in a peer-to-peer way, which was not really possible before. Running, you'd always have to have a trusted third party in case something went wrong, or in case your friend you know, spent, you know, ate all your Cheetos or whatever. Um, so that's the idea, and and we're just now seeing a lot of these kind of um, the killer apps of um, smart contracts. The first one that we've seen is the ICO, um, which is an initial coin offering. And what that is, is you essentially tell your friends, you say, hey, people, What if, like a good example, this is this thing called Filecoin. So you say, hey, what if we made, um, what if you could like buy and sell um, in this peer-to-peer way, like, you know, storage on everybody else's computers? And everybody's like, yeah, it seems like a good idea. You write a blog post about it, gets a bunch of upvotes. So then you write a white paper, which is like a detailed um, computer science way of formalizing the protocol and saying, here's how it's going to work. Here's how the incentives are going to work. So you you say that, and you write the white paper, and people are like, oh, this is sweet. And you say, okay, cool. Everybody seems into this network. Um, You say, great, I'm going to put a smart contract on the blockchain. I'm going to run an ICO. I'm going to put this... ICO smart contract on the blockchain that says if you give it money, if you give it ETH or Bitcoin or whatever, then you get in return, you get some Filecoin. Because, and people will want to do that because they will then want to use that Filecoin later within the network. They'll say, hey, I'm going to pay some money for this Filecoin now. And then later I'll be able to use that Filecoin within the network. Um, Or they could just be speculating and say, hey, I'm going to spend some money here, get some Filecoin in return and then sell the Filecoin later. But it's essentially a way to kind of jumpstart a new network um and get a bunch of aligned early adopters you essentially align a bunch of incentives the incentives of speculators and early adopters and the employees um all around this new network so that's kind of one of the first killer apps we've seen uh, with smart contracts is the ICO
0: it seems very much eating its own tail kind of thing though we have a a coin contract that's good for making more coins Mm-hmm. I mean, definitely what, what, what can you actually do on it? Cause I imagine you can't store a lot of data on the, on the no. Y- yeah. You can't,
1: you cannot. Uh, yeah. You don't want to store very much data on the ledger. There is this, um, the way that a lot of people store data in the space is this thing called IPFS, which is the interplanetary file system, which is a way to kind of yeah, <laughs> cool name, mm-hmm. a way to essentially store data across many different, um, in a kind of this distributed way, not in like Amazon S3 or whatever, Um, So, yeah, I mean, if for the ability to do ICOs is to just the ability to get more new kinds of tokens into jumpstart networks. And that is powerful um, for like a new kind of for breaking down the defensibility of networks. But like you say, those people should only get into these ICOs if they think that the token that they get in return will actually have utility value. So you'll be able to use that basic attention token to buy attention or you'll be able to use the file coin to um, get storage on people's computers. Um, so that those are the those kind of this I mean Ethereum came out essentially in 2015. Um, there have been a bunch of ICOs this year in 2017. People like there's there's other projects happening a little bit earlier than that as well but people expect to see some of these tokens. It's kind of a make or break time in these next couple of years where you say okay is the promise of this network which is these awesome distributed basic tension or awesome distributed file coin network will that actually get built out and then will these tokens be used in this great new network um we'll see if that happens i i have covered basically most of the
0: things i wanted to know about ground-based knowledge is There, you
2: things you want to know that's all the like prereq knowledge i think that anything that i would have asked about so okay there was a been a making rounds recently. Uh, recently, isn't like the last two weeks from the time of recording. What was it? Showtime's website mm-hmm. was uh, using uh, through the browser, <laughs> yeah. uh, using viewers' computers to mine Bitcoin. Yeah, what? Not, not dissimilar yeah. to how Pirate Bay was doing it. Oh shit! And so my thoughts were like, all right, Pirate Bay. I'm sailing with pirates. I kind of suspect that you know. I, ca- <laughs> I kind knows? of like yeah. understand what I'm getting into. You yeah. know, if you guys want to, they they were. what well, what did what did Pirate Bay say they were doing? Uh, like piloting some test or something to like, just see if it was possible. All right, that was it. You guys discovered us. Yeah, we were just seeing if that would work. All right, bye. (laughs) Um, Showtime though, you know, you're not on there to steal stuff. You're on there, you're paying to view stuff on the website and hey, while you're here, we're going to go ahead and use your browser. So I was curious, a, if you knew much of like the technical implementation of how they did that. And if you had any thoughts or mm-hmm.
1: responses to Yeah, it. so I, the other one I heard about for that was FC Barcelona, the soccer team, was also doing that. Um, and I think that it was just like, I'm not sure if for Showtime's example, when I was talking with someone about the Barcelona example, it sounded like it was just kind of a rogue dev who was kind of trying to be funny. It was just like, let's just inject this code in here. You know, we'd spend the user's CPU cycles on mining some Bitcoin. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, so I think that... I, I so I yeah I guess it's happening. I don't know.
0: So whenever my computer is running slow, it's because someone is hacking my uh my cycles to mine
2: coin for them. Exactly, exactly. Yeah,
1: Cx, those bastards. Um, when your
2: computer is running slow, it's almost always your browser. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <Yeah>. And <laughs> if it's only one window that you know is slowing
1: things down, then yeah, keep an eye it's on it. Right. It's <laughs> probably Bitcoin. Yeah. I don't know what they're gonna do. I I think that that's an interesting thing, and it's and in, in theory that is leveraging the thing that we want to be happening generally, which is take. any kind of liquidity in the world whether that's liquidity of um cpu cycles it's like hey you're not using them so like why not mine some bitcoin you know well uh, also because i'm paying for the electricity oh totally well and i think <laughs> i think that you should get the value back you know All right but i think there is this this is kind of the beautiful world that some people in the blockchain world say is like let's take any kind of liquidity and use that liquidity to then transfer it into some other to, to use that to get some kind of scarce thing. So this is an example of that. There's also these things called prediction markets where you can kind of take um, the liquidity knowledge of the world, kind of matching that liquidity with the capital. So you so t- essentially reducing, this is all about reducing the friction for things. Um, and so reducing the friction for anybody to say, hey, I think I know something about this future market here. I'm going to match my knowledge with my capital here. Um, and so, yeah, that's yeah, so hopefully it's a matching liquidity thing. I don't. <laughs> I hope that less injection, code injection things are happening going forward, but I, I don't really know. So you are particularly excited about uh,
0: cryptocurrencies because of something with EA. Yeah. By EA, we mean effective altruism. We had a episode or two on that in the past. How how do these two things uh, intertwine? How
1: are yeah, they related? That's a good question. And I actually, I was taking some. Uh, I'm writing an article right now for the Effective Altruist Forum about this. Cause, cause right now you have like 80,000 hours has a cause selection list. Um, and it says, Hey, they essentially base it off of, um, how neglected the problem is and then how impactful it is and then how tractable it is. So how solvable it is. Um, and right now something like artificial, like aligning AI alignment or AI safety is, you know, top on their list and saying, Hey, we should really do this. Um, and there are other things up there as well, but Bitcoin and blockchain, all that is not at all in the radar, really. It seems, um, and I think it should be. Um, so yes, I'm into it, and I have some notes here about why I think it's true. Um, I'll say them at a high level, and then we can dive into them in a second. Um, the first two, and I want you guys to kind of push back on this from like a rationalist, you know, like <laughs> oh snap, we're being tested, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> or I mean, tested or not tested, I don't really know. This is this is rough. I guess is another way to say this. So I think that there's four big points um the first two points are about how this blockchain technology people talk about it as like a new wave of the internet and like um and I think that just in general, if effective altruists could get in on new technology at the beginning, like if you injected effective altruism into the beginning of the industrial revolution, maybe we would have less climate change around. Or if you injected effective altruism into the beginning of like AI, you know, and those kinds of things, then maybe we'd be less far behind on like the AI alignment problem or what have you. What Um, do you mean by injected effective altruism into those things? I think what I mean by that is injecting a, essentially injecting a mindset which is um, quantitatively based around all human li- around outcomes, utilitarianism, and having human lives all being treated as equal, um, and saying, "Hey, right now, instead of the profit motives of the companies that are pushing it forward being the primary determiners of what happens within this new with this new technology, mm-hmm. instead, we should also be thinking from an EA perspective around um, how this technology will impact society. Okay. Um, how how it impacts human flourishing." Yeah, yeah. Did you
2: want us to push back after you listed all four points or when they come up? Yeah,
1: that's a good question. If if you Um, have pushback right now, push. Yeah, push. Let's push. I'll just say,
2: like, given, like, the limited resource of effective altruists and the... Speculation involved of like which t- which fields do we want to jump into and push our you know EA speculators into yeah I guess I I need to hear the rest of the argument because like that sounds like there could be a lot of wasted effort there but yeah. kind of like with everything it could pay off right yeah there could be a lot of wasted
1: effort investing in Bitcoin and yet boom <laughs> yeah. five years yeah. later yeah. so yeah I agree with that though I mean I think in that this is a this would be. This is something that the EA community is talking about generally, which is these um, essentially a hits-based business, which is what EA has traditionally not been able to do because every little person mattered. Um, but w- if you see things like Y Combinator or what have you in the startup world is all about hits. Um, and so EA is getting more into hits-based investing, and that's what they're doing with like their EA Grants program. That's what Open Philanthropy Project is doing. And so this would definitely be a hits-based investing thing where you essentially bring effective altruist mindsets into VR and AR, into biotechnology into blockchain cryptocurrencies and then maybe they they wouldn't have had any effect or maybe the effect would have already happened what have you you know um but maybe in some cases it was good to have those couple people there um from that kind of hits perspective so that's that's the macro point here and this this point as as i said is is not just applicable to blockchain i think that this is true generally this is just like hey we should have do-gooders with any new technology essentially yeah Cool. So that's that's point one. That's kind of at the macro level, um, and then and that one's really based off of how much you believe that the technology will have a big societal impact. If you think it's a small technology, then well, then we might not need it. Doesn't have high expected value. Um, the second one here is again um, kind of a little bit abstracted away from blockchain and cryptocurrencies, um, but is about. Kind of so so people talk about blockchain as a new way to kind of coordinate people and to motivate people, um, and what they mean by that is like. Um, so there is traditionally you've had things like the state or the market or the you know the firm um, and then up and coming these are things like the network things like Airbnb and Facebook and what have you these are ways to kind of coordinate people around things and then kind of motivate them and incentivize them to do stuff um, and blockchain is another seems like a new way to do this where you kind of coordinate people around a given protocol you say hey let's all come together here's how the protocol is going to work it's going to be a basic attention token blah blah blah. Um, And you start to motivate people with tokens there. So this is the macro point here is that if there is a new kind of operating system or new kind of kind of coordinating, motivating organizational structure, that um, effective altruism should be uh, part of shaping what that structure looks like.
0: (laughs) I don't think it, it doesn't strike me as a very new way to do things, though, because basically it's money. Like people like tokens because then they can exchange them for goods and services and just straight up currency in whatever country they reside in. So, I mean, there's nothing
1: that new about paying people, right? Yeah. I think there's not... So the way I like to think about this is money thus far has been kind of one-dimensional. If I have money in my pockets, like it's a US dollar, whether it's one or a thousand, whether I got it for um, hurting somebody or if I got it for like saving the world, it doesn't really matter. It's just like it's kind of a one-dimensional object. You can imagine cryptocurrencies and all these different kinds of cryptocurrencies as kind of in-dimensional money where you're able to see, um, oh, wow, this person has some do-good coin or this person has some basic attention tokens. You can kind of see in an in-dimensional way how... Uh, like what they are incentivized for, what they're, what they're looking into, where they got their money, th- those kinds of things. Mm-hmm. So this doesn't, this, this answers, I think your point about, um, this as a new kind of money and what this new kind of money looks like, this doesn't answer any pushback around it as a new coordination and motivation system. It's definitely still incentives, but you can incentivize people. I guess it kind of, the way I like to think about it, it's kind of like it democratizes new incentive structures. So you can say, hey, I'm gonna make this smart contract, and this new smart contract, it's going to have this incentive structure built in where if you wanna get some of these tokens, you have to do this kind of thing. Um, and in the past, it was probably more—it was more difficult to do that, especially on the internet. Um, but now, you can essentially create these new incentive structures in a more easy way with low cost, lower friction, to kind of create new incentive structures. I
0: did read a interesting, very short story about a thing called Nice Nice Coin, mm. where uh, people would get Nice Coin basically for being nice. Yep. And the main uh, benefit of having a bunch of Nice Coin is that people liked you and wanted to be around you. They're like, yeah. "Oh, this guy has a lot of Nice Coin. He might be a pretty cool person." Whereas if someone had almost No nice coin, they'd be like, Oh, don't date
2: that guy, he's probably a (laughs) jerk. I saw that episode of Black Mirror. Oh, that that was an (laughs) episode of Black Mirror, too? Not exactly, but they did one like that, (laughs) kind of like with uh, it was like a hybrid between that. If people had Yelp reviews out of five stars Uh, and Facebook, yeah, except like it was literally everywhere, like you had those little attachments in your eyeballs. Oh, god, um, so it. Didn't work out well, but nothing works out well in Black Mirror. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I that one time. That was yeah. a
1: good episode, and I do, I do in general expect something like that to happen in the spaces. People talk about reputation a lot because mm-hmm. if you can track all the things and you can see what all the people have been doing. Well, we're gonna have some intense reputation systems and there's like this new chinese social credit system that's being pushed by yeah. chinese government. so like i, I think the problem with
0: number-based reputations is that they are stupid <laughs> 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 that anyone yeah. can just ignore a number and be like you know what whatever i like bob he came to my house and helped me chop wood that one time and his number can be zero but that's probably because those social justice warriors called him a i don't know nazi or whatever mm-hmm.
2: and i'm just going to ignore the number there's also like, the fact uh, you, that you like, always have the actual reputation. Reputation. Well, yeah. and you know, also consider that you can let someone else take the reputational hit for you. Mm. You know, like if if uh, if say I wanted to buy drugs online with Bitcoin, but I wanted to be tracked, I don't want to run that risk. I could just give like paper money to my friend who has Bitcoin and be like, "Hey, you want to buy some drugs for me?" <laughs> yeah. And then that way it's on their history and not yep. on mine, right? Because yeah. yeah. like the cash doesn't come with a receipt on it yeah. right but so. your friend still knows
0: about your reputation what you did because you did it with them but that does, that they might my... tell some their friends
2: you know there's but this is the public, actual right? what reputation means right what people think of you because of their interactions with you i guess i was looking at like the kind of thing that like if I were to pull you up on a website and be like oh Ineash has a 3.3 out of 5 and that's yeah. because he did these things i also well, tend to not trust websites anymore for those sorts
0: of things well, <laughs> if i see a bunch of people piling on someone it, it happened i don't know not too long ago in the writing community where someone just like got everyone piled on on him and I was like, well, maybe he did something shitty, but eh, I don't know him. I ain't going to judge him until mm-hmm. I meet him myself cuz mm-hmm. I know how the internet works. Yeah. I I see someone making a really shitty joke about about AIDS in Africa and then they lose their job a few hours later. Mm-hmm. And I mean, yeah, you shouldn't have made the shitty joke, but it's I You're just not. I don't I, I don't trust I don't trust the internet to give me decent uh, ideas of people of who people are anymore. Like, if the internet someone says someone's reputation should be really shitty, I'm going to be like, I'm going to make that decision for myself. I am a big fan of Mr. Zuber
2: and I don't really like Mr. I don't know. Not Zuber. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I think it might like just to you know, with that hypothetical though, it could be less about like who you're going to be friends with or who you're going to hire or who you're going to like invite into your house, mm-hmm. but maybe who you're going to hire for your company, right? You get 200 applicants, mm-hmm. that score might come into play, right? Yeah. You have, I mean That or depends entirely applicants. on how much society like values that score. Sure. If the
0: majority of people do value that score and say that you're a bad company, if you hire someone with anyone less than a three rating, then yeah, that would probably affect my decision. But if I can convince all of society that the score means nothing, then it won't matter, you know? <laughs> That, that, that's what I'm going for right now. I'm trying to convince people that these numbers are stupid.
1: <laughs> so
0: I dislike your coin ideas, sir. I say, well, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, I did,
1: I did, it, Well, it's going to happen. If it's inevitable, you can dislike it, but yeah. it will be part of the future. That's true. <laughs> um, I, I can dislike communism, but it's still there. Exactly, exactly. Yes, exactly. Um, one, so finishing up this point, I do, I, yes, I, I, I do want to get a little, a little bit of pushback. On. So there's a, another side of it, which is this, so it's this new coordination system and in theory, um, mm-hmm. and a new organizational structure, it's also very aligned with like, these new coordination, these new like networked human organism, like collective intelligence things that are happening. Mm-hmm. Um, there's some really interesting like peer funding stuff happening within the EA community. Um, and there's also... There's Define this, peer funding? Peer funding is when one person pays another person to do something, instead oh. of an organization paying. So it's essentially what I do with my Patreon as well. Okay. Patreon is a subscription Kickstarter, so I have my Patreon. It's online, patreon.com slash ReeseLendmark. Um, yeah. <laughs> and um, you can go there and you can pay me money per month to do my thing, to create a humanist blockchain future. And um, and so it's not a company that's paying me money and I'm not being sponsored or whatever. It's, it's like a, person, a peer-to-peer kind of person way to sponsor people. So that's happening generally, but it's also happening in some interesting ways within the ea community specifically um which is cool and it's happening in other things as well and the and the hope also is that another big macro trend that people are talking about is this idea called a teal organization have you guys heard of like a holacracy before uh-uh. it's like a really flat organizational structure um so like zappos does this um and it's like no managers you know just like really flat uh, kind of very bottom up and that uh people in the space talk about how like tech informs society and society also informs the tech and so like the blockchain, this is kind of Conway's law which states that essentially the code that you create will be representative of your organization and your organization will be representative of the code that you create Um, and so because blockchains are so kind of distributed, decentralized what have you, kind of bottom up there are these new organizations that are coming around in this thing called teal and teal that's like the color teal um, which is where you kind of imagine the the organization as a organism So instead of like in the past, you know, there's this thing called, you know, they say orange, they color code them in this funny way. But orange is like um, the organization as a machine, their inputs and their outputs. And that's kind of what we've done for a lot of the last hundred years or whatever. Um, And then recently in the new kind of Silicon Valley style, it's like, hey, we're into green, which is like the organization is family, like very welcome to the Slack family. Welcome to this family. Um, And so people are pushing that. That's that's what has been and now what people are expecting and see is like the new frontier for this. is kind of these new teal organizations. Um, so this is me saying that this is, blockchain is essentially equal, is like the technological equal to these teal organizations. And that this all is part of this macro trend towards this stuff, this thing called platform cooperativism and this kind of new concept of how people, one of the new ways that people can organize and motivate themselves. And if there is a new way for people to organize and motivate themselves, then there should be a little bit of EA within it. So is there like
0: I uh, like, bayesian conspiracy coin where if we need some accounting done we're like you will get bayesian coin for doing our accounting and then when we put on a show we get bayesian coin for time on mic or stuff like that it's just like you need something done you offer bayesian coin to anyone who can do
1: it are you yeah are you saying like is an that like how a teal coin thing? well no is, is that a- like
0: how teal works
1: is that a teal organization oh so it's teal- like how do you coordinate Humans through teal. Yeah, so there are three main ways to coordinate humans through teal. Um, the first is like self-management, um, and that's essentially the uh, idea that people define their own goals, they define their own um, metrics, and they and then they can become part of these kind of like organ like. Um, organizations they call circles. These are kind of like little groups essentially. So like a team of teams kind of thing where you become part of a circle and you allocate, you know, 30% of your time to the diversity circle and you allocate 50% of your time to the effective ultra circle or whatever. Um, so it's kind of this bottom up people defining their own roles and then becoming, opt-in into certain kind of circles. Mm -hmm. Um, That's one part of it is the self-management piece. What if Uh,
0: everybody wants to be like the uh, actor circle
1: and no one wants to be the guy holding the boom mic circle? (laughs) Totally, totally. (laughs) Well, everybody, there will be, if the organization wants to, the organization will still have these kind of bottom-up Um, like the organization needs to exist as a thing. And so if there's a bunch of people that want to be the actors and there's no one holding the boom mic, then the organization will cease to exist. And Mm -hmm. so in a kind of a peer-to-peer, kind of circle-by-circle way, people will determine, okay... Everybody needs to spend 20% of their time holding the boom mic or whatever that looks like. Um, So it's kind of, instead of a top-down, like this is the way things are going to happen, you will be judged on your results and here's what your job is going to be and everybody's kind of specialized. It's like, it's kind of bottom-up, peer-to-peer way to determine how work gets done. That sounds like
0: it would be... A thing that doesn't work <laughs> totally
1: totally totally, in my
2: totally, totally, totally. Uh, just just for my interaction with other humans <laughs> yeah step you said there are three ways of managing people in a teal environment and first one is they manage themselves I'm like, <laughs> Okay. <laughs> <laughs> <Lol>. <laughs>
1: that is hilarious and the other two are just nothing it is true that um, there are there are some good um, success examples of this Um, within non-blockchain space there's this uh, great nursing organization that uh, it used to be this is in I believe the Netherlands it used to be hyper-specialized everybody had their own little roles everybody was timed on all their specific things this new company came around that was tealy and it was very community based instead of having a specific accountant and specific, whatever you had these small teams of these community based nurses of, you know, 10 to 12 nurses who were, uh, you know, responsible for their county or their community. And, um, Every, all the metrics went up. Um, it, it, they've it, experienced ridiculous growth. They have. Um, there are all these communities Everybody's happier. The, the care that they're giving is better. Um, and and there's only there are these coaches that exist one level above, which like work with like fifty or so of these given communities. And that's kind of what the hierarchy look like. It's essentially a two depth hierarchy or three depth hierarchy. Um, do you and, remember
0: the name, or can you send us a link afterwards?
1: Yeah, it's it's okay. part of this book called "Reinventing Organizations," um, and that's what they have a bunch of case studies in there. Uh, and there's a specific company within the blockchain space called Consensus, which is very tealy. Um, I've heard and, of them. Um, Yeah, and, and there are other, I, I assume that many of the other uh, companies in the space operate in that way as well. Okay. So, but so this is the, the point. The macro question for you guys is: this kind of a weird argument these top two arguments I think are weird because they say, hey, if there's this new technology coming out or if there's this new way to organize people, then the EA community should be in it. Sure that's not a classically given argument, I don't think okay. to, within the EA community okay. are you guys convinced by it at all or do you think it's like kind of weak? <laughs> no I, I, I am not convinced by it mm-hmm. I like if I,
0: I would want to know more uh, than just like oh there's something new happening so we should have someone in it. <laughs>
2: I'm always sort of in favor of throwing smart people at new problems. And so, I mean, kind of like, you know, I always want, like, scientists, philosophers, and, like, people who take thinking as a core value to be thrown at any new thing. Mm -hmm. So, in general, I'm persuaded by, like, the general Mm -hmm. uh, theme of the argument. Um, But, I mean, I don't know. Yeah, I'm I'm interested. I don't know if I'm ready to come down.
0: Like, I mean, VR is becoming a rather big thing now too which is neat but i'm not hearing any arguments for like because it's becoming big we should have some ea people in vr well
1: i and i agree but i think based off my first point i would argue that that is true I, i would argue that people that there should be ea people in VR, actively trying to shape this new kind of more addictive, more intense environment in kind of an EA way, or what have you. Um, so I would, I would make the, the argument for the first one, which is new technology. I would argue that for VR or biotech as well for EA, and then for the second one, I would argue that for any new kind of organization, organizational system. I don't know of any other of those that are necessarily coming out these days, but um, what do you, what do you mean by like we should have an EA person in VR,
0: like? <laughs> I mean, do do we assign someone from the EA community to watch over the
2: VR companies and be like, "Don't do that, sir." That <laughs> well, is yeah. the other problem. There is with the implementation is like, who's going to listen to somebody be like, "Oh, you're 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 trying to talk me out of something that's not my bottom line yeah. as far as profits." Like, why the hell am I going to listen to you? Yep.
0: It's like you know, would be really cool virtual uh, virtual war games,
2: and the EA person's like, that could have not bad knock
0: on effects. It's like, well, fuck you, I want to make my virtual war game. <laughs> yes. Like,
1: why should he listen to them? Or she. And this is and this is the tough thing. And I've you know I've talked with people in the EA community around the early days of when Google was making their DeepMind thing. And and the EA community was generally arguing, let's maybe wait a bit on this. Um and saying and trying to talk with Google and saying, hey, I don't know, like maybe this makes sense to kind of chill on this for a little bit. It didn't work. Google said, no, no, we're still going to do this now. Mm-hmm. But they got their voice heard at least. They were able to be part of the conversation in there. As you guys are saying and this is all just about what metric you're optimizing for. And there are people, all these, um, all the, all the classic companies are operating for profit in various ways. Um, usually in us dollars or what have you. And the EA kind of one metric that matters. Their KPI is instead kind of, qualies or you know something quality adjusted life years or something like that yeah. um so i don't know exactly what they do but they probably they operate around instead of the profit metric they operate around a, a human race and kind of quality metric okay and to kick back on my own point
2: that you know it might be hard to get your voice heard just because it's hard and maybe has low chances of success if the payout's huge and it's not that hard you should or excuse me and it's not like, all that life-consuming, right? If you're not going to dedicate your life to trying to get the people at VR to listen to your EA pl- your EA pitch, but you're going to dedicate, you know, a weekend a month for a year or something, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that doesn't sound like a bad idea because mm-hmm. it's not, like, ruining, you know, it's not dedicating a huge investment, right? Yeah, the opportunity costs so, that But, I mean, if, you, right? if you're a, uh, especially if you're a figure with, you know, a following or something and someone's inclined to, like,
1: take your calls... Mm-hmm. Uh, Hit them up? Yeah, <laughs> then... <laughs> Sure. <laughs> yeah. So did, did you want to keep going or I do I do have two other points here, which okay, I think okay. are, I, so, which if you guys think they're interesting. And these ones are specific to blockchain. So okay, they good. would be so they're not at the macro level. Um, so these ones so the second one is all about or sorry, so this first this third point rather is um specific to blockchain. It's about this kind of redistribution of wealth. So so the the blockchain is all about kind of redistributing and decentralizing the, all the things. And, and and one thing that they're doing that with is kind of wealth and also a little bit with power. Um, and so that has some implications. And this is this is one way to kind of see the Bitcoin in the blockchain story mm-hmm. is as one that is very connected to a bunch of young people who want to do good in the world. They're trying to go out there. They're trying to do good. And they're like, oh man, the world's really bad. It seems really hard to like operate within the existing ecosystem to do this. Like I can like go and like try to work for a politician, but I'm not sure whatever. And they also want to have an impact and they've told they're special. Um, and then something like Bitcoin comes along and they're like, oh man, this thing is a... This went up 20x. You know, Ethereum went up 15x in the last six months or whatever. These people start to get into the say, this is what the new society looks like. This is the story that we're that we as young people are are part of, and it's like bringing power back to the people or whatever. Um, So that's kind of what part of the Bitcoin or what, what part of the blockchain reality is about, and that has kind of two implications. One of them is from a wealth side, so right now you have like you know eight percent of people own as much wealth as 50 the bottom 58 or the top eight people have as much as the bottom 50 percent combined Mm -hmm. um and you have not that many people who are giving to various ea causes or who are um doing good ea things or what have you or they're just a surprising amount of rich people with a surprising amount of houses (laughs) Um, and um that's moderately sad but you have these new kind of crypto millionaires that are coming up that are just that are 27 they're pretty young whatever um and if we can kind of get them To have this kind of EA mindset around taking the giving what we can pledge or taking the founder's pledge or like what I want to do this kind of like crypto's pledge, um, a, a crypto pledge, like founder's pledge, but for crypto. I think if we can get this kind of new generation of people with money um, to kind of partake in EA activities, that would be cool. And this is happening to some extent already, like Vitalik Buterin, the main, the dude who invented, or who was the main Ethereum guy, he gives to, um, he is on Less Wrong. he talks about, uh, he he gives to give directly into uh, Against Malaria Foundation, so he's into this, and also like MIRI, Mate- Machine Intelligence Research Initiative, the biggest um, donation that they've ever gotten was a million dollars in ETH, and this happened like three months ago or whatever so this is one side of this is like if you have a bunch of new wealth being generated a bunch of money essentially going from fiat Mm -hmm. into bitcoin and other cryptos we want the people who are part of that bitcoin and other cryptos that kind of new wealth to kind of give that money back
0: so uh i totally agree with you that that that, that's cool and i (laughs)
1: encourage everyone to be into effective
0: altruism yeah but on the other hand i don't see how that's specific to cryptocurrency That's like a new field has arrived and people are rich and I would like to convince rich people to be active effective altruists, but what does that have to do with crypto, really? I mean, that could be anyone.
1: Yeah, I think that that's relatively correct, that they're that but I think that the difference in why in crypto it's so special is because it's part of this macro trend where we're where you have essentially like, if you imagine, yeah, all the initial, like, if you could convince all the initial people who made the social networks at the beginning, Google and Facebook and what have you, to that, to be more EAE, that would be cool. And that would be kind of a power law of return, where if you get Eric Schmidt to do it, that'd be awesome. With, and I agree that it's pretty much any time that there's this new macro wealth transfer, that getting EA in on it would be good. And right now, what my my hypothesis is that a macro wealth transfer will be into or wealth transfer slash wealth creation will be into crypto and it will be kind of decentralized and bottom up and that if we get many of those people in, uh, to to have EA-like mindsets, then that would be good. So I, I agree with you that it is not, it is kind of specific to crypto and that this is kind of this macro trend away from like fiat perhaps into these new cryptocurrencies, but um, uh, it is, it, this would happen with any kind of money being, any kind of new nouveau rich kind of situation. Can I push
0: back real quick? Yes, definitely. I also yeah. consider crypto to be a fiat currency. So when you mm-hmm. say moving away from fiat, I'm like... Totally. I, I know the traditional definition is fiat money backed by governments, yeah. but I still think a cryptocurrency is basically a fiat currency.
1: I almost agree, except that... Um, when the, when the things have utility value. So for something like ether, I would claim that that is not just backed by a story. I would claim that ether is backed by the utility value itself by people. Even if, even if, yeah, people want to run smart contracts on this computer. And so if people want to do that, then it's not purely backed by the idea. It's backed by an actual desire to, for ether to run smart contracts. Okay. Um, yeah. All right. Point taken. There's another side of this, which is this like creative destruction externalities piece, mm-hmm. which is we were if if and a lot of people talk about it in these ways. If the bank is going, if and these are kind of the more aggressive versions of reality. But if the bank kind of be gets distributed into the network and 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 the trusted centralized institution, whether it's a bank or whether it's a government, if that kind of gets pushed into new city states or gets pushed into these like non bank entities. A lot of the people with power will no longer have power anymore. Um, And that is worrying uh, because whenever there's a power shift like that, then. That, that what i call a creative destruction externality which is when you create a new thing that has like the classic example is like um self-driving cars it's like you do that and then there's gonna be a lot of job loss for you know the, the truck drivers
0: i i love that that is now the classic example like <laughs> yeah. the classic example used to be the person making the horse buggy whips yes yeah, still... and, and now to smart driving cars yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah
1: yes exactly and if which hasn't even happened yet yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> So,
1: um, but so we're going to have this externality, which is both some of the like white collar jobs are going to be disintermediated by blockchain, but also you're going to have, um, this, this power, uh, this, this shift in power. And if you have that shift in power, I just, I'm worried when that stuff happens, whenever these shifts in power happen, it's kind of worrying. And so I guess that this is maybe still another kind of not specific to blockchain, but kind of just like whenever there's a shift in power, if there's some kind of good rationalist kind of far trained double cruxing person that can come in there and kind of help the power shift better, mm-hmm. that is something that I think would be good. Okay. So it seems like your two
2: micro examples or mm-hmm. micro examples. Uh, uh, points yeah. we're sort of implementations of the first main point mm. that it's good to have EA people in stuff Yeah, we want to get our feelers in as many things as possible <laughs> yeah. which I'm in favor of uh-huh. uh, I, yeah. I also uh, would like to spread the EA ideology yeah I mean I'm just trying to think of something more useful to say about it like wouldn't it have been great if we had gotten you know the creator of uh, or the creators of you know whatever uh, Facebook and yeah. uh, Google and YouTube or whatever all you know EA minded before they did that. So I guess the goal is to all right, well let's not let that keep happening. Let's get the next Facebook things in our uh let's let's inject our memes into them first <laughs> yeah. and then when they become billionaires, we won't have to like talk them out of giving them their money because they're already going to be inclined to
1: give it away. That's pretty much the macro concept here, I would say. And I do agree that these this this point that I thought was specific was actually more just like hey, it, this is this macro power trend and it's like having EAs in high impact situations is yeah. good um, Yeah, there is one final point here which is about this have you guys read Meditations on Moloch yes yeah, great piece about how incentive structures can kind of go bad and how like in in Moloch for listeners is like this, Moloch is essentially capitalism gone wrong where you have like game theoretical things that involve like arms races or kind of um, race to the bottoms and things like that. And um, a lot of like kind of sad things in society can be shown as like Moloch did them, AKA incentives did them. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's the final hope here um, is that in this space you have we can create a new, because we can kind of rewire the operating system of the society and of incentives that we can kind of democratize the incentives, create these new incentives. We can start to also represent kind of this middle ground in between us by saying, hey, we both own some Ether. So let's, if I can help you out with your Ethereum stuff and you can help me with my Ethereum stuff, we can kind of collaborate here around this Ether thing. So you can kind of start to solve these kind of like tragedy, the commons and uh, issues here um, and hopefully beat Moloch. How would you do that? See so so that yeah. sounds really interesting. Like the other stuff
0: was like spread EA. Yeah, yes, I'm on that. Okay. How do you <laughs> use Ethereum to to uh, do that?
1: Yeah, so this is so here are so you can imagine so one example of this is so so I think that the macro concept is that you're able to democratize incentives. So, okay. you can democratize incentives and You can, by democratizing the incentives um, and by those incentives kind of existing, not with any given person, but rather kind of in this middle ground area where it exists. Like a nonprofit is the person who controls the Ethereum, like the Ethereum Foundation is that because it's kind of this ability to because these blockchains exist in in between in the commons area, you can then create incentive structures there that people altogether agree with that can be more uh, beneficial for the commons itself and for like society as a whole
0: now Um, okay what are you talking about creating incentive structures that people can agree with
1: yeah so yeah let's let's do a specific example here so you can imagine there is a um so let's say there's google and facebook and Mm -hmm. they are both trying to make better and better ai's And they're going to do that very quickly and it's essentially a a version of the nuclear arms race, but with the bad result being an ASI or like a AI safety, AI alignment issue. Um, You can imagine um, the ability to – and people are starting to work on this – to either from a data perspective, to instead of having the data in the silos and having it be where people are kind of operating in isolation kind of secretively, that data is instead on the blockchain and people can kind of operate on it um, in a more kind of transparent way and it can exist kind of in between Google and Facebook. And by existing there, um, you can be, and by the data not being yours, not being mine, um, you can have more people operating in a transparent way around it. So that's kind of one version of this. And like Toyota is working on this with self-driving cars, like a version of a self-driving car data set that exists on the blockchain rather than on um, in a siloed data system. Um,
0: what is what is the incentive for doing that though as opposed to keeping it in-house and capturing all the gains once they make the AI? Totally,
1: totally. So, and so for someone like Google or Facebook, this would be tough at the beginning. What you hope is you can then... So so this goes back to the in-dimensional money thing where you can start to represent... Um, Outcomes and different versions of uh, value that are provided to the world um, that you weren't able to do before. So you can imagine creating something like an ASI coin, or like a no ASI coin, or like a good ASI coin, um, and that could be something that exists, and, and it and it it is a way to essentially represent. Um, you can you can do a bunch of different versions of this, but the easiest way to represent it is to say, "Hey, this is something that people can kind of buy into as a way to signal that they are into good ASI." Or really quickly, can you um, define ASI? Artificial superintelligence is an ASI, um, and uh, that is the scarier version that's more intense than we expect it to be. Yeah. Um, and uh, or could be really good. So by creating this coin that represents and again, these these are not fully formed ideas, but so the ASI the ASI coin can represent either people wanting and signaling that they want a good outcome there. Mm-hmm. It can also, the coin itself could also represent, could also have kind of built into it kind of smart contracts. So this is this concept of like a social, uh, they call it a social outcome coin or a social good coin where you essentially buy into the, um, coin at the beginning. Mm-hmm. And then as you buy into the coin, it uses this, um, concept called a curation market where the coin buying into the coin at the beginning essentially is easier and then buying into it later is harder, um. And so as you buy into that coin, you buy into it. And then once it essentially checks an outcome later and after the outcome later, it then, uh, distributes that depending on the outcome, distributes that money back to the people, um, based off of that outcome. So So it basically sounds like signaling with your money, what you want to happen, like vote. One dollar is one vote, right? Yeah, I think it's very. I think it's relatively similar to one dollar one. The simplest version is one dollar one vote. With maybe a little bit more of an aggressive version, where you can actually more aggressively signal by getting by giving one dollar to OpenAI project, mm-hmm. um, and then getting one ASI coin in return. Okay that's that's kind of the simplest version. There are more advanced versions, which I didn't explain very well, but that involve smart contracts to enable you to essentially peg the value of the money of the coin to a to a metric that represents that value. So essentially a prediction market on, whether we think that there's going to be a good ASI. Yeah. So if you got in at the beginning of that, and then that prediction market was saying, yes, this is good, then the value of that coin would kind of like increase.
0: But if Google doesn't buy any of those coins, they don't have any incentive to make the price go up. Totally. Yes. Yeah, so yeah. I guess I guess it's sort of like a crowdfunded X prize then?
1: Yeah, it's not too different from a crowdfunded X Prize. I think it's also like you're saying, I think it's I don't expect Google or Facebook to do any of this soon. This is going to be hopefully part of this macro trend where kind of uh, that they call tokenizing the enterprise, where you kind of take businesses. And people, they're doing this with this company called Kick, which is a messaging company, and they're kind of tokenizing it, adding this cryptocurrency Ken to kind of tokenize like the ecosystem in there. People might be expecting it with something like SoundCloud. And so this would be hopefully part of this macro trend where businesses themselves become more tokenized and where we start to tokenize not just profits but start to tokenize outcomes as well okay. um, but yeah I think, I think it is a I think that the two big things are hopefully that there's the open data set and then also that there's a um, that there's a way to kind of signal that you're into the, the a good outcome here and there are smart contracty ways to kind of incentivize people to create those good outcomes yeah <laughs> All right, I I I I see
0: how it could have some benefits. Like I don't think it's the uh, complete solution to things, yeah. but but
1: I, I can see how it could be. And there's, there's one version of this that I didn't say that this guy, Amin Soleimani, talks about. He has this project, he's an Effect vulturist that has this thing called Moloch Ventures, which is his own hmm. um, uh, blockchain-based venture studio that's trying to create things to beat Moloch, essentially. And um, he talks a lot about this. By putting a smart contract on the blockchain, it's essentially, it's... It's a way to, that you can't go back on it. So like when people are trying to go back on like the Paris Agreement or whatever, hopefully that there, we can create these smart contracts that make it the case that if you went back on it, you lose a bunch of your GDP or like things of that variety. Um, It's a way to essentially make immutable contracts in a way perhaps that were not possible before. Um, That's another thing that people might be excited about to beat Moloch here. Okay. Yeah, but Moloch's the one that I have the least uh, 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 conceptualization around at this point in time. I'd say, yeah. Okay,
0: we are coming up on an hour and a half. Yeah. So we should probably wrap it up. Are there any other things you wanted to hit? Mm,
1: I don't. Nothing on the top of my mind. We talked about some of the EA stuff. We hopefully did a high level overview. What are you, Stephen? What are you? Yeah. What are you? Anything else?
2: Um, we covered a lot of stuff. Uh. I guess I'd be remiss if I let you go without asking maybe five minutes on Litecoin. Mm. Any cool stuff? Uh, so I bought the three currencies that I did because they're the three I could get through Coinbase. Yep. And they were the three that the people that I knew who were into cryptocurrencies were excited about. Yep. But I didn't bother doing a lot of homework myself. <laughs> so I didn't know most of what you just said about Ethereum, which is kind of cool. Mm. Um, anything cool or bad about Litecoin that's out there? Or is yeah. it just a random competitor that took off?
1: That's a good question. So it, it does have... It was one of the first competitors, which was powerful. Um, the person who's the leader of it... Uh, I forget the name of it right now. He is um, he's very well known in the space. So kind of that is a good signal. Um, and it doesn't have as much of the kind of... Bitcoin has a lot of inter-tribe arguments um, because there's no clear benevolent dictator kind of like uh, this, you know the Litecoin guy who I can't believe I forgot his name right now. Charlie Lee. Charlie Lee or like this guy Zuko with Zcash or Vitalik Buterin with um, Ethereum. There's no... You know, Satoshi is not known, whoever Satoshi Nakamoto is, the creator of Bitcoin. Um, so Bitcoin has a bunch of like inter-tribe issues. Litecoin, I don't think has as many of those. Litecoin also... The reason why it's called Litecoin is because it uses... I'm not sure which algorithm it uses to get it has faster transaction times um which is nice so a good example of this is um, i did this podcast with this guy around x charles from yours and yours is a micro it's kind of like medium with a paywall so kind of like a micro payments platform um that wouldn't be possible kind of with traditional currencies and going through visa or paypal or stripe or whatever because you have the the 3% plus a 30 cents. Um, but with something like Litecoin, they switched from Bitcoin to Litecoin because it had faster transaction times and especially because its transaction fees were lower. Um so that is why people generally like Litecoin. Cool. And since that was under five
2: minutes, I have another question for Great. you. Um <laughs> the Bitcoin fork that happened a couple of months ago. Yeah. Um I can't remember if we talked about that on the air or not at any point. I don't think so. I don't see why we would have, but I feel like I talked about it in this house at some point. That's what I was on mine. <laughs> um is there a
1: quick overview of what happened there slash why that happened yeah so that's a good question the so at of high level i don't know as much about it because i'm deeper into the ethereum space um there's this lady linda here who writes who used to work for coinbase and is writes these really good intro articles and has this great intro to bitcoin versus bitcoin cash article which just gives this great um table and i'm kind of forgetting the table right now the, at the high level point is that there was this big debate among the kind of the two parts of this ecosystem bitcoin core which i believe are the developers and then the bitcoin miners um which are the people that run a lot of the mining equipment that's like 10 people around the world kind of um who have like 90 percent of the hash power Holy um shit. 10 yeah. people yeah that's kind of scary yeah. it's supposed to be more distributed than 10 people it, totally Okay. And this is this funny decentralization centralization thing. Uh uh-huh. um, So yeah, it is. Yeah. Um. I, I that number is close to correct. Um. Hopefully the um. So the miners wanted, I believe that, and I don't understand this well enough, but they wanted to just purely increase. Essentially, the the network was getting too filled with things, and they were they needed to scale. This this is a huge thing within the space generally. Is how does it scale? How is Ethereum going to scale? How's Bitcoin going to scale? So one scaling way was to create this was to essentially increase the block sizes so instead of a one megabyte block instead of one megabyte of transactions going on there instead let's increase it to eight megabytes or two megabytes or something and that's what the miners wanted i believe um and then the non-miners the developers bitcoin core they wanted this thing called um segwit which is an algorithm that allows you to essentially get faster transaction times Um, and so that was the battle between these two groups. Um, and that battle happened for a while. And But they actually came to agreement around this thing called Bitcoin Cash, where they would, uh, or I believe, where they would essentially do this hard fork. Um, and as a result of that hard fork, it would, you essentially all the currency that did exist gets duplicated. So there's all the Bitcoin and then there's all the Bitcoin Cash. Um, and now Bitcoin, I believe that Bitcoin itself has, um, has SegWit, online and that Bitcoin Cash has uh, some people over there who are excited by it who are more like Bitcoin Cash maximalists. And that, I believe, has increased block sizes. Um, so that's kind of what's happening in the space right now. And then in the near future, there'll be this thing called 2X, I believe, which is where you have on the main um, Bitcoin blockchain, you also increase the block sizes um, from one megabyte to two. So I think that's the space I could be. Do not trust me on any of that because I really, I know just enough to say that, but not much deeper, Yeah.
0: I wanted to go back to a thing you said just a little bit earlier. Uh, you were very excited about how uh, the cryptocurrency like democratize, democratizes the, <laughs> yeah. the power and like pulls it away from the big governments and the institutions and these centers of power and spreads it among the people. Yeah. But I... I it's, I'm pretty sure that there's more than 10 people in like the old school institutions and governments. Yeah. And it seems like we have just managed
1: to concentrate things even even further if it's down to 10 people in the totally, cryptos. Totally, totally. I think that's a... Good point, and that's this. there's this great piece by this guy, Balaji, who is the um, co-founder of 21.co, which is something that you guys should check out as well, which is a way to essentially get money to um, re- to receive emails, kind of, or to do tasks. Um, in any case, he talks about quantifying decentralization, this great blog post, and in that, they say uh, he, he, he does this quantification, because that's the main goal of this whole space is to decentralize things, to make things more like equitable or what have you, but because of the way that systems work, they re-centralize in various ways. Um, And so, yes, there's definitely re-centralization on top of these platforms, and there's definitely re-centralization happening generally. And... I think that is one of the hopes. And and that is, let me say one other thing, which is that the Ethereum blockchain, which I believe actually does have a similar um, decentralization coefficient, this like genie coefficient as Bitcoin. But in theory, they hoped that it wouldn't because you don't need to... um, On the Ethereum blockchain, they have a different kind of consensus algorithm within their proof of work algorithm that means that you can't use these specialized ASIC GPUs to run... um, that doesn't give you any advantage in Ethereum, but it does give you advantage in Bitcoin. So that was like an attempt by them to try to decentralize it more. But yeah, it's <laughs> this decentralization thing is, uh, that's the hope and the goal, and there's definitely recentralization happening. Okay, <laughs> yeah. cool. Uh, so
0: before we go, what are you working on now and how can people find out about it if yeah. they wanted to?
1: So uh, what am I, I am working on primarily two things. Um the first thing is uh, I have a podcast, my own podcast called Creating a Humanist Blockchain Future, um, and it's about some of these concepts that we talked about today um, and interviews various people within the space to kind of uh, get a and, and kind of do deep dives on both a, from a technical side, from a, like a philosophical side, um, and having like some good philosophers within the space coming on soon, which will be sweet. Um, so I have a podcast and I also have a I do kind of a consulting thing within the space as well, where I use these kind of teal principles and kind of lean and agile practices that I've done in the past to kind of help people within the space um, in this way. So I do that through my Patreon, which is patreon.com slash Rieslandmark. That's slash R-H-Y-S-L-I-N-D-M-A-R-K. And I implement some other cool things there. Like if you give me 10 bucks a month then for every 10 bucks you give me you get one Reese coin and then that Reese (laughs) coin can be spent on my time um (laughs) Stephen we're implementing Bayesian coin after this (laughs) get that money going um I also do have a self-imposed income cap as well because I am of the EA mindset and think that you know studies show that after about 45,000 bucks in America you have decreasing returns or essentially very small returns on on happiness when you get more money so at around that point for me on my Patreon um I essentially stopped taking the money and redistribute it back to the system in various ways um, through like charities and things. So that's what I do. That's what I work on. Uh, yeah, you can come check me out if you want and, and definitely support if you want. <laughs> cool. All right. We'll definitely link to all of those on the website. Well, thank you guys so much for having me on the show um, and yeah, happy to talk about these things. No, Thanks. thank
2: you for coming. This was great. Yeah. I, I enjoyed talking to people like if you and Ash and I had just, you know, chatted about this would so have ended up like our Game Theory episode, right. so yeah, yeah, yeah. which was where we were supposed to have somebody who knew what they were talking about on, and then we kind of just winged it. So no, I appreciate your your expertise and your time for spending it here with us. Thanks. Yeah, it
0: was fun. Thank you guys. And Steven, you want to stick around after this uh, to do some listener mail? Sure. Okay, excellent. All right, before we begin, we have to thank our generous Patreon supporters for helping us. This week, we want to thank Casey. <laughs> Thanks, Casey. And uh, anyone else who wants to support us, you can do so at Patreon. Or if you would like, simply leaving us a review at iTunes also helps quite a bit. It gets to spread the show to more new people.
2: Yeah. Ultimately you can just trap somebody in the car on a road trip and just keep playing episodes of this while they're, you know, unable to change the channel. Yes. I'm kidding, don't don't hijack that.
0: No, totally do. <laughs> if they reach for the, the, the switcher on the on the thing, just slap their hands. Be like Swerve the car. <laughs> yeah. Listen. You gotta listen to the sexy Ineosh and sexy Steven
2: being like, hey, listen to us talking about rationalist things. Man, <laughs> one of us has uh, what am I trying to say? I was gonna, I was gonna make an allusion to how I had had something, had I had been drinking a little bit earlier, and you <laughs> haven't, and you wouldn't have been able to guess that from this exchange, <laughs> right? Yeah. I am just high on life, thank life. you. Uh, so,
0: for going to listener feedback. Let's start with the great Nick, who asks, um, this is after our parenting podcast. Did any of the panel, and it's just gonna be you and me, I guess, since we don't have the rest of the panel here. Did any of the panel have any thoughts on the issue of overpopulation? As someone trying to do better, I struggle with wanting children, being that it's pretty much the single
2: worst thing you can do for climate change. So those are two different issues, Mm -hmm. are my first thought. On the one hand, yes, your carbon footprint goes radically up with a kid. I'm, I mean, I was going to say, I'm personally not worried about overpopulation, but I'm also not planning on having kids. Uh, But I'm also thinking that by the time that becomes like a real thing, where like we're running out of like landmass for people to live on and food for people to eat, uh, I think we'll have other solutions to those problems, whether it's like, you know, uh, artificial islands or living in space or whatever. But yeah, I've always sort of been torn on like the carbon footprint uh, problem. Yeah. I don't really know how to get around that. Like, yes, you're making a carbon footprint, but you're also like producing potentially a lot of good value for the world too. And for like your life and other lives, if you, you know, if your kid goes on to make people happy. So like, I don't know how I'm not going to do that math and say, you know they need to have this number of eutelons and share this much happiness with the world to accommodate their carbon footprint but yes people have carbon footprints yeah
0: i i am also of the opinion that those are kind of unrelated that yes people do burn things for energy but people also do a lot of good and really who is going to figure out how to scrub all the carbon out of the atmosphere if not for people Cause I'm sure pretty darn sure the dolphins ain't gonna be doing it. <laughs> so, so if we're relying on humans to eventually find some technological way to get the carbon out of the atmosphere, on net the human species will be carbon neutral, and you're not going to help things at all by reducing the amount of humans that could be
2: either working on the problem directly or helping to keep the system running that funds
0: the people that does work on those
2: problems. I can't remember if we talked about this directly in the episode or not, but like, you know, a lot of like cults and religions have uh the great meme of like no uh, protected sex. So like, yeah. therefore lots of kids. Yeah. So like, there is some virtue in like having kids that not like you're going to like just force feed rationality, but that you're uh, planning on raising to be somewhat sane rather than just like, you know, all, I, no one is raising their kid to be, you know, a religious nut job on purpose yeah. because they think they're doing the right thing. But yeah, you know, the more scientifically and rationality, rationally oriented or inclined people that we get out there, the better, right? So maybe one of them will be the the people who solve all these fun problems.
0: So I I personally think that it is a bit... Overpopulation is kind of sort of an issue, uh, in my opinion, because the human race, as long as it grows at any sort of rate, will eventually outgrow the universe, I don't remember. I know we mentioned this at an earlier episode, and it's been so long now that I don't remember what the actual time frame was. But Robin Hanson once calculated that if we continue growing even at 2%, uh, that within a matter of a few hundred thousand years, there'd be more humans than there are atoms in the universe, which is obviously unsustainable if you want to remain physically bodied. But even uh, if we go entirely to uh, simulated humans in some sort of computer, there's, there's an upper limit on how many people could be simulated too. So overpopulation could eventually in the long run be an issue, but I don't see it being issue for a while. And by the time it starts getting to the point where we're running out of universe, I think we'd be able to self-modify our own desires Quickly, quickly and easily enough that we could take away the desire to have lots of children. So I, I'm going to go out on the limb here and say that everyone is okay having uh, one kid to replace themselves uh, without without any sort of uh, guilt that they should have at all. And if you are in a relationship with one other person, then that is two kids between the two of you. I, I do seriously side eye at the like quiverful movements and other sort of uh, we are encouraging people to have 12 children because that is that is some way too many children <laughs> in my personal opinion. you you are not doing your kids a favor when you're having that many of them. but uh, I am going to go ahead and at the risk of sounding egotistical saying that I think rationalists and the sort of people who would be listening to this podcast have tend to have higher than average value children <laughs> which, I know it goes directly against my earlier things where I was saying that all human lives are valued the same on a moral level. But uh, seriously, I don't think you you are going to be the type of person that has shitty, awful children. Uh, your, your kids are probably going to contribute to the world in some way. And so... D- d- Go forth and multiply (laughs) by two. (laughs) Right. Uh, Don't think it is the single worst thing you can do for climate change or for the human species or for the planet or whatever. That is just, that's basic misanthropy. That humans are evil and we should have less of them is what that feels like. And I dislike that attitude. Right on. Cool. Um, There was also some back and forth uh, following this with Nick and another user, and they... They basically came to similar conclusions as what we've just talked about, if I recall correctly. But I wanted to get your input on it, too, because I thought it'd be interesting to ask you. Cool. Uh, the Great Nick also says, um, because I, I talked about them at an, in an earlier episode, at just as Nick, I believe. I made this username back uh, 15 years ago on somewhere like Newgrounds. I originally wanted the username The Great Nickname, but it was too long, so I cut the last word off. My name is not Nick. Sorry about that, Nick. <laughs> from now on, I will refer to you as the great Nick only or nickname or something, but not just Nick. So that's a very
2: common misunderstanding.
0: Yeah. Maybe I'll just, just call him the great. The <laughs> Yes. Uh, so on the ritual episode, we got feedback from Shelley Doesn't Drink saying, I love sing-alongs and don't get creeped out by them. Not even if it's Christian songs from back when I was a Christian, but chanting along as a group. Very, very creepy. Even if the words endorse something, I express something I endorse. Around 2000, I was in a city where anti-war protests were going on, and I happened to walk by one as they marched down the street with their signs and chanting. I felt instantly overwhelmed by emotion, deeply moved and inspired. I got physically choked up and my eyes watered, but I did not actually want to feel moved or inspired by this, which caused me to feel simultaneously repulsed by the experience and how it was hijacking my emotions." Basically, anytime I see something like a protest or a group display of earnest fervor and solidarity, I get this reaction. Even the cliched scenes in football movies, it affects me like that, and it's icky. And yeah, I totally see how, if you are having your emotions hijacked when you didn't want to, that's a bit of a violation of. of I mean, I'm I'm sure they weren't doing it specifically to target the person, but that is also something I would dislike and I would stay very clear of rit- ritual and religious sort of things. If, uh, if I knew it affected me that way.
2: Yeah. I'm just off put by chanting in the first place. Cause it does seem like the kind of thing that, you know, you do right before you throw someone into volcano. But, <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah, I, no one likes being tugged around without like setting themselves up for it emotionally. Right. Like if I, if I'm going to be freaked out, It's one thing to get, like, you know, scared if I'm going to go see the new It movie or something. Like, that, I'm wanting it, right? Mm -hmm. I've consented by buying the ticket and sitting down and watching it. But, like, if I'm just scared in public, somebody just screams on the train or something, then, like, you know, that sucks. But (laughs) I don't know if, uh, I mean, that's just part of being in the world, right? Uh, You know, I occasionally someone swerves in traffic or something right just today someone you know went around me at a straight lane they're like i got to go faster and went around to like the right turn lane oh, and right. cut me off i'm like oh i'm sure glad that i was you know kind of watching because you did that out of nowhere and if i had straightened like to go over this pothole thing we would have collided so i signed on the brakes yeah. it's like they scared me without my consent but what am i gonna do yeah i try to endorse social norms
0: of not doing that
2: i guess I try not to be a dick. Okay. I try not to like get in people's way and step on people's toes. So that's that's probably the way to go.
0: Do you do you also try not to join groups of chanting people in the streets?
2: I can't think of a single situation off the top of my head where I've ever chanted. Oh. I've I've been in a few marches and the chanting is really fun. I've been in a march. And I don't think we chanted. No, I did almost do one. I was at a, I was at a conference, and uh, Bill and I, the science guy, was doing a thing. And this was, I was still more shy back then, and I wanted to do like a Bill, 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 and I didn't. Oh, yeah. And it's one of my regrets. Oh, but you know, as far as regrets go, that's pretty mild. Yeah. Um, but that would have been a chant, but that's sort of not the same. Yeah, I'm. I'm gonna go ahead and just say that's distinct enough because everyone has seen the show where that's in the opening music from his 1990s television program bill Nye the science guy and that's not me just being like you know all hail the science guy out of nowhere right so <laughs> right all right <laughs> googleplex Byte says i think an
0: intellectual monopoly on anything is fine so long as it abides by Georgist philosophy That is, every intellectual monopoly's value is to be evaluated and some portion, example given 20% per annum, is to be given to everyone as intellectual property as it's fundamentally everyone's common property.
2: Share the proceeds in intellectual property or share the property itself? Uh, The proceeds from it. Okay, yeah. Yeah. I thought that and initially i thought you said like the property itself i'm like how do you share 20 percent of an idea yeah (laughs) you can read the first page of my five page thesis right um yeah i mean i don't have much to add there other than that's interesting uh it would sure like that would take a lot of the problem out of monopoly right
0: yes and no i think i think it would take some of this thing out of monopolies if if the you know portion portion of it did go back to everyone. Uh, I think people would be much less concerned about monopolies if a lot of their their profits were divided back to people and like, hey, you've given us this monopoly power, we're giving you back something for it. Um, But on the other hand, intellectual property, I think is a slightly different domain. as you are probably aware, Lovecraft is very big. His mythos, I, I have this game next to me called Cultists of Cthulhu, which is based on the Lovecraft mythos. And it's, I mean, it's pretty big in geek circles, but it's it's like, I don't know, half the games out there, uh, board games, are based on some sort of Cthulhu mythos. Maybe, okay, half is an exaggeration, but there's a lot, right? And people really enjoy the, the Cthulhu stuff and write a lot of stories with it and it's become sort of like a rich cultural ground that we all can pull from and and express ourselves. And part of the reason for that is that Lovecraft died early enough that he just got missed being swept up with uh, the Disney Mickey Mouse indefinite copyright forever on everything thing. So uh, his works, most of them went into the public domain, which is why we can do things. And I think that's, a good thing we now have this cultural background that we all share and we can all tell each other stories and build on it and i i, I likened this to what if there was a, a disney type of monopoly back in ancient greece that didn't allow people to travel from city to city and sing about the the gods and and pass on their cultures like nope i'm sorry but Corporation X has a has a monopoly on all stories about Zeus and and Ares and Corporation Y over there has all the stories on uh, Hercules and Hera. So you you can't tell any of these like I, I feel like the for example Marvel the superheroes that we have today are basically the equivalent of the pantheon of the ancient Greeks. They're humans with superpowers that we tell stories about to make sense of our own lives and to inspire us. And they're bigger than life and their problems aren't really real, but they kind of reflect the things that we, uh, struggle with. And they, they very much taken the place of those more human gods, in my opinion, but only Marvel is allowed to tell any fucking stories about it. Like if we try to go out and build on this and make it into something, we get sued. And I think that really impoverishes our culture to have these stewards owning all the intellectual property that we build
2: our psyches upon. And this isn't something I've done a lot of reading about, but it's interesting to me. First of all, you make a compelling point. And you're right. It would take some of the sting out if you got some money back, but then you still lose, like... Uh, like, what if Tolkien was able to patent high fantasy, mm-hmm. right? And if I'm, if I'm correct, Tolkien's is high fantasy, right? Basically. And, and he Harry Potter is low fantasy?
0: No, Harry Potter is definitely high fantasy.
2: I thought high fantasy was took place on not Earth in a place with different rules. And regular fantasy, or low fantasy, or whatever not high fantasy is, took place... In our world with magic or some other element.
0: No, Well, okay. So high fantasy is definitely... I mean, Tolkien is like the Ur-example. And uh, it's generally things that are on other worlds. uh, And a non-human... Or not non-human, but a non-Earth-type world with no reference to Earth at all, right? Uh, But I would consider um, Harry Potter to be pretty darn close to... uh, Maybe not high fantasy, but in that
2: same school. Because the only... Difference between uh, Harry Potter and Tolkien is that it does take place on Earth. Oh, but Harry Potter could just as easily not take place on Earth because it's not talking about like, well, not really talking about like the uh, the active Prime Minister in 1990 or whatever, right? Right. So like, if it was relating to actual world stuff, well, it does like reference World War Two. Yeah, and it, and like at some point, Minister Fudge meets the Prime Minister or something, right? But yeah. like, uh, it's probably closer to urban fantasy. Gotcha. But urban fantasy is still fantasy. It's not like... When
0: I think of low fantasy, I think of things like uh, Game of Thrones in the first book. Uh, I guess the first book was called Game of Thrones. Uh, it's In the first book, there was like basically no magic. The, uh, and like one or two little things, and the dragons were born near the end. But for the most part, it was just medieval Europe.
2: Uh, people with swords and bad hygiene hacking at each other. Gotcha. Yeah. So... I was going to say, what if Tolkien could patent like high fantasy? Yeah, and then suddenly no one could write in that style without paying Tolkien Enterprises some dividend from their their returns on that book. Yeah, we um, wouldn't have
0: Dungeons and Dragons.
2: Yeah, or like lots of other stuff, right? Mm-hmm. So that that I guess I'm not sure what counts as intellectual property. Like if I make it up, make up an idea and I share it, I don't know. I am not well thought enough in this uh, subject to give any meaningful thoughts other than to say. I basically agree with everything you said. (laughs) And like, I could see if you reduce it to absurd pretty quick, yeah, things get really boring really fast. Even if you're not talking like in the context of like products or like things that we can touch, right? Mm -hmm. Um, If the rounded edges rectangle is my IP and you can't make a phone that looks like that because you're not Apple, well, that's going to slow down like everyone else's phone market. It's like, that's one aspect. But yeah, just like, no, we have, you know, uh sorry marvel universe has patent on anything that has to do with superhuman anything if the person can lift more than 700 pounds that's that's beyond you know what you guys are allowed to publish yeah that would be insane (laughs) that would be yeah that would be crazy
0: and it's it's not quite that bad but i do think that anyone should be allowed to make a mickey mouse movie if they want to and that would also introduce some competition with disney that they would now have to be more um they, they would have to create the best Mickey Mouse movies, the most Disney-esque ones,
2: in order to make people want to go to Disney Mickey Mouse movies. So, I don't want this to be like the, you know, intellectual property episode or post-episode discussion, but like, <laughs> so what if that was a thing and somebody made just a bunch of videos of Mickey Mouse beating up minorities mm-hmm. and, you know, throwing racial slurs. Mm-hmm. And then, like, their big thing of Mickey Mouse that they've had as their icon for like a century is not being associated with all like these, you know... Nazi esque bullshit, right? Like uh, if someone Pepe to Mickey? Sure. So, like, I can kind of see the benefit of, like, no, we're going to sue you if you try and Pepe Mickey okay. because, you know, people think of us when they think of Mickey Mouse and we don't want them to think of us when they think of Pepe Mouse, right? yeah So, I kind of see the, I, the rationale.
0: I don't know. I don't think it would really do that because there have been people like drawing Mickeys with Hitler mustaches and such.
2: Yeah, but if they made that into, like, if that showed up on the Simpsons and on Rick and Morty and, you know, other uh, cartoons that hadn't, you know, audiences, mm. then, you know, people would be associating that with Disney, mm. especially if there was like no protection and like, yep, I'm from Disney. I'm the real one. This is what happens when I'm not on the screen with, at Disney universe. I'm pretty sure that
0: you could still like protect your brand. If someone says they're making Kellogg's cornflakes, but they're not actually Kellogg, then you could sue them. You can like, you can make your knockoff cornflakes, but you don't call it Kellogg's cornflakes. Much like you can have your own Mickey movie, but you can't say it's a Disney Mickey movie unless you're
2: Disney. Okay. Yeah. All right. I can see where, where that goes. All right. I'm ready to move on. Okay. <laughs>
0: um, dub, dub, dub. On our um, sacred cows thing, Zirth says, I confess I roll my eyes when I hear rationalists have few or no sacred cows. I bet it's because I define sacred cows differently. Bayesian Conspiracy's definition is a falsifiable belief about the world that one doesn't want to falsify.
2: Um, or at least risk falsifying yes like it could be true but i'm not going to look at it because if i open that box and i'm wrong then my belief is shattered yeah in which case it does seem
0: like rationalists have fewer sacred cows than non-rationalists but i will define sacred cows as a belief that causes you to not notice mistakes you make example of this kind of sacred cow uh thinking that talking about it makes it better thinking i'm unworthy thinking worrying solves nothing thinking people need structure you walk into conversation and start talking and miss what your interlocutor was saying because you believe things like this.
2: What was the definition? They believe or... Uh, a belief that causes you to not notice mistakes that you are making. Um, I'm fine saying that that's a thing and it's a problem and we can call them sacred cows but like then we're just messing up definitions. Yeah. Um, I feel like mine is closer to the colloquial usage. Yeah. Um, I think that sounds more like... It almost sounds more like They're defining a bias. That's what I was thinking. I thought that's what they're going to give examples of. Um, Yeah. I mean, it's good to, I I don't know if it's necessarily a belief that keeps, prevents you from noticing when you're wrong. Yeah. Yeah. I'll have to think on that. I mean, that sounds like a conversation worth having, but I don't know if it's the same. I think we're talking about different phenomena entirely. And whether or not we want to call them the same thing is, you know, that's, that's whatever, but I think they're, they're distinct things.
0: I think there's definitely things that make me wince and not want to talk about them. Uh, Like if someone says that different races have different IQs on average, that is a thing where I would be like, you know what? I am not comfortable talking about this. I, for a number of reasons, (laughs) does that make it a sacred cow? That um, we have to, we have to hold on to the mythology that all people are born equal.
2: I don't know, man. Uh, <laughs> I mean, yes, by my definition, I think it would, right? Yeah. Um, but like, it, it's a separate question to wonder: like, is that worth digging into, given what could happen, and like, what what, what would be the benefit of finding that out? Mm-hmm. Um, like, it actually happens to be that, like
0: that sounds totally like a sacred cow then like he was saying it causes you not to not to think about it what would be the
2: benefit of finding that out Um, that is totally a thing that you would say if you have like a sacred cow belief one benefit of finding that out if it turned out to be like drastic which is probably definitely not because somebody would have noticed by now Mm -hmm. um could be like okay so it looks like uh for whatever reason people under five feet really struggle with spatial reasoning um you know, we could adjust our curriculums in schools to to help with that, right? Mm-hmm. Or like, you know, choose something that you care about more than spatial reasoning or something, right? Yeah. Um, but like, it just so happens that like tall people make more money, but they also have typically shorter lifespans. So like, those are things that like, ha- I think are actually true about tall people on average. Obviously, mileage is varying. and that's kind of an important thing, right? Yeah. Um, so, you know, knowing, not, not, not acknowledging those things would be pointless and just make you wrong. Um, so I'm not really sure, uh, you know, when you, when you grab politically charged topics and then say, you know what, I don't feel like touching that. Like there's all kinds of good reasons not to do that. Right. Mm -hmm. So it's like, Oh, you know what? I don't want to be the one person arguing that we should, you know, do a rigorous IQ analysis by race because yeah, then you sound like an asshole. and Like that's going to ruin your reputation. Yeah. So like, that's a great reason not to do it just pragmatically. Yeah. um, you know, in addition to, I guess it's s- like asking, what it, is it worth the reputational cost to go down this road? Yeah, probably not for most people, right? Yeah. Um, like Charles Murray, the, the author of what the bell curve, mm-hmm. he has like security risks, yeah, because of a book that he wrote, right. and people who haven't read it assume that he was like some Hitler, and, and he wasn't even making really that big a claim. No, and the claims that he was making were pretty substantiated. Mm-hmm. That I mean, at least if, if if they were incorrect, they were at least well reasoned and it seemed in good faith right this didn't seem like a you know some bullshit book to push an agenda this was like i wonder what's happening yeah. oh then this um you know these are my findings and this is how i got there that's, that's uh so that's different than saying like i'm gonna write a book that proves that top people are actually smarter um yeah, yeah so i don't have much to add there there's an interesting question from Aladdin. What intrinsic
0: value would you give an object of mystery? Uh, This was when we were talking about, um, heck, I don't even know what we were talking about. Maybe it was after the the burning of the Picasso painting or something. I don't know. By object of mystery, I mean a thing, not a person that nobody knows anything about and possesses a fascinating, unique phenomenon to be discovered. If it were destroyed, no one would ever have the possibility of researching something similar. Uh, An example would be like the monolith from the movie 2001. Well, movie and book but most people are familiar with the movie.
2: I'd give it exactly six value. (laughs) Yeah.
0: That's a weird question
2: because I don't... Yeah, I don't know. It would be... I think the question is like, does it have value even though it's not a person?
0: Yeah. What can you... How can you know what value
2: it has if it's a mystery object? As far as you know, it's just a black piece of rock. Part of it was part of the prompt though, is that it has unique and interesting properties that are unique to, or that are, you know, unfindable anywhere else. Yeah. So who knows what that could be? So, I mean, it, it's value, I think in this context would be interpreted or discoverable in hindsight. You know, you look at it and be like, Oh, okay. It just turns out to be a different shade of blue than anything I've ever seen before. So I'll give that, you know, one value out of a hundred. But if it's like, Oh, this is like a recipe that cures cancer, you know, that's a hundred out of a hundred. So I don't know. uh, That's, probably kind of a flippant answer to a sincere question but the better way to phrase it is like do things that aren't people have value okay and so i think that things that aren't people do have value i think so too especially insofar as they provide value to people Mm -hmm. right so like this lamp isn't a person but i sure value being able to see yeah so i'd be uh, willing to pay 20 dollars for this lamp right so that in that way i think it's completely reasonable to say that things have value um I don't think things have value. Well, maybe that was another interpretation of the question. Like, do things have value in and of themselves just because they're rare and and interesting? Um, I can see an emotional case for that, but I, Sam Harris has this great quote in, um, I think it was the moral landscape. He says like, imagine a box that contains something that has no uh, bearing on the well-being of conscious creatures, whether you know, hypothetically or in any possibility, it can't weigh in on the experience of anybody you have by definition, the most boring thing in the universe. Yeah. Right. It's like, if this thing isn't going to do anything for anybody at all, no matter what, then it's it's super, super boring. Right. It is. It has no value. Yeah. Um, Again, if it's a box with a cure for, I'm thinking of cancer nonstop, Um, if it's, if if it's a box, the cure for cancer, then it's super valuable. But like its value is depending on how useful it is to people or other things. You know, maybe it's the, maybe it's the box that, uh, you crack this vial and it releases this thing in the air. And now whenever an animal is about to die, it gets this shot of endorphins and it Mm -hmm. feels great rather than, you know, dying in agony, like everything does. So that can be value to not people, but it's still only valuable insofar as it reflects the well-being of conscious things. That's how I'll define that. I like it. All right. I'm ready to move on. Cool
0: chlorine crown says i was listening through the archives where we got to the one where we talked about uh the those who walk away from Amalis by ursula leguin uh they have a solution imagine you're behind rawl's veil of ignorance and this city is explained to you knowing you have a large chance of living in a wonderful place or a small but substantial chance of being tortured for 70 years in order to give that splendor to thousands of people wouldn't you still accept
2: it probably i'm a gambler let's do this <laughs> Plus I like those odds, right? Yeah. It's not one in five. It's right. one in a hundred thousands.
0: Well, probably not a hundred thousands, but one in thousands at least. Yeah. I'm not sure exactly how big
2: the the population center was, but at least several thousand, it seemed like. Yeah. I think that I'd probably take the shot. Although I think it's an important part of the story that's never explained that's I think heavily implied that the person being tortured wasn't given the option. Yeah. That they're just fueling some horrible machine. Yeah. So
0: I think that's important. I also I don't know. That is a weird question, though, because that sort of brings out the question um, of the utility monster. Like, am I obligated to sacrifice my life to someone else if they would get a lot of utility out of my sacrifice? More than like, am I obligated to be someone's slave if my 70 years of misery would make their lives much better than how miserable I am?
2: Yeah, that seems analogous and that seems worse. So now I don't know where to go. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, I'd like to think no, but right. like that's the whole point of the utility monster is like, well, good luck arguing with this because it seems to hit every point that you care about. And yet this horrible thing happens. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't have a good rebuttal to the uh, utility monster. I, I have me neither. I'm sure they exist. We can, we can look it up. I think that's one of the reasons it was a good story. Uh,
0: Bayes and Confused Confused says that... That's a
2: great username, by the way.
0: Almost everyone would agree that raising the sanity waterline for everyone and giving rationalist techniques to everyone, even if it's only a little bit per person, would be massively useful. I'm going to give an example from my own background. My family is an Egyptian, but I've been a U.S. citizen since about a year old. I've been highly Americanized. I went back to Egypt for the first time about a year ago and the thing that struck me the most is what happens to an entire society when the average education level is about second or third grade. One of my younger cousins who was, who's was asking me what things I had learned that had helped me in life in America so he could try them in Egypt, I pointed him to the less wrong community and the sequences. It's been over a year now and we realize there is an interesting dynamic at play between the effectiveness of an individual rational person if the sanity waterline is low in their society. I'm sorry, I'm kind of screwing up the reading of this. Uh, Specifically, he's gotten better at practicing even simple, rationalist techniques, like repeatedly asking himself why he believes stuff, and defaulting to looking to data instead of going with his assumption. The results are really good with him. He's gotten multiple promotions, and he's doing better in school than he's ever done, significantly better than his classmates. But now, he keeps running into issues of cooperation. Because he now thinks through his plans a bit more slowly and deliberately and comes up with good plans, he wants to have people who can help him and can follow that line of reasoning. But at a certain point, he just can't find any other intelligent people and his progress stalls. A formulaic way of describing the phenomenon is to say that the bigger the difference between the rationalist and the society, the faster they will climb upwards towards whatever success or goal they have. But it is the overall sanity waterline in a culture that determines how high you can possibly ascend. In Egypt, being a rationalist means that you can get to the top really quickly, but because of where society is, that top is not nearly as high as it would be in another educated society. I think that's why it's important to make rationality and ideas related to it more popular as a whole. Yes, even to the soccer hooligans. Because if they can get even 5% smarter, I think it moves up the maximum upper bounds significantly. And I thought that was a really good point, that if we can spread the, the whole rationalist... a bit and move up the sanity waterline just a bit there's leaps and bounds more progress that we can make at the highest levels because everyone else working with them and uh keeping society running is just better at doing that it's a multiplier effect almost
2: yeah that's an awesome story and i appreciate sharing that um the i have a couple immediate thoughts on that one um yes i think that that general point is probably true you know so you can get you can only get so high but without cooperation where there's there's no uh, more edifice to keep building on right because you can only build so high by yourself which makes you think that uh i, I have this thought every few months never something sparks it but i'm pretty sure ellie Eiser had many motivations in writing the Last wrong sequences mm-hmm. and i think this is probably one of them mm-hmm. like you know there's only so much that i can do by myself i need more people who are interested in this kind of thing kind of closer to where I'm at so I can get more of a team on things. And uh, maybe that was an expressed goal, but um, that uh, seems like the kind of thing. And that might be, you know, a solution. I'm not sure exactly what problems your, uh, was it cousin or uh, nephew, whatever cousin. it was, your cousin was facing. Um but man, if they have any friends that they want to get into this kind of thing, then a lot, at least that way you have like a brain trust of people that, if you want to really think through a hard problem, you're not just doing it by yourself, right? You can be like Harry Potter, um, in Methods of Rationality, starting his own Bayesian conspiracy with Draco,
0: yeah, to try to try to get some more sane, educated wizards on his side.
2: That's like seventy percent of the reason that I wanted to do the local meetup here. Oh, really? Not just for like, you know, getting, well, let me rephrase that. It wasn't for that exact reason. It mm-hmm. was, it was for the reason that I preferred about like getting a brain trust to people that thought enough like me that I could bounce ideas off of yeah. and we could, you know, but they could provide original content back. Like I can't do by myself. Um, I find that super gratifying and super, uh, useful if I had a problem, but you know, really it hasn't been so much of like a, all right, brain trust. Here's my problem. Mm-hmm. Um, has it, has it worked out? Has it helped you to have the less wrong group? I'm actually just thinking about that, and probably now that I think about it, because I started, well, I didn't start the group, but I, well, I helped get the local community going. Yeah. And it was around the time that I was dissatisfied with my current life uh, trajectory at my, uh, where I was at professionally with my job and, you know, where that was going. And I'm not, it was. I was ready to like take the dive and do something else, but like I didn't really know what to do. And it was these people who were like, you know what? You should give this a look into and check this out. And I don't know if I'll love programming in 15 years, but I like it now. And if it gets boring, like there's only a thousand things to do in that field. So I feel like I could stay busy there for a while. Um, so yes, now that I think about it, that could be definitely a consequence of doing this. So yay, that's good. Awesome. Yeah. I hadn't realized that before. <laughs> i'm I'm glad things have worked out i feel like a warm glowy right now well i'm hoping that it helps other people too right yeah. like i mean that was that's the thing about like you know it could just be a slack channel if i wanted just ideas to bounce people off of right so okay. i think there's I something like special th- about meeting people in meet space agreed that's that's why i like that so when you meet people in real life you get like a you know a a real community that feels more personal because it is yeah uh you meet faces you meet names you get stories that sort of thing so Um, yeah, I'm hoping it's valuable. I'm assuming it's valuable to other people than just me because people keep coming. So, yeah. Excellent. Uh, That's all I got. Yeah, I don't have any other feedback. Okay, cool. Um, I mean, there's other people who wrote in and we, I think between us, we probably read absolutely everything that, you know, comes in on Reddit or through the email or through the website.
0: There was an interesting back and forth on one of the Reddits about uh, someone explaining why Harry Potter, the canon Harry Potter is very classist and pro-capitalist. I was like, "Oh, that's an interesting point you make there, and I had never seen it because I'm just
2: living in that water, you know?" This was on the H, or on the the basin conspiracy subreddit. Uh-huh. Okay, I got to find this. Yeah, That sounds awesome. Cuz I'm curious what the argument was. Yeah. Okay, that's Sweet. it. Thank you everyone for listening. We'll be back in 2 weeks. Thanks.
0: Bye.